even though the Craig is completely unreliable and we don't use him anymore, it's it's good to like invoke his spirit. You know, just like summoning him like helps put you in the the right frame of mind. That's the best. We are we are just remembering that back in 1711, someone drew a pentagram on the ground and did summon Craig for the very first time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, I'm a little garbage boy who loves garbage. Give me the garbage, I'll eat it. Hacking okay. 3DS. Um, yes, hacking a 3DS. This is, is this so has all it. been parody. So um, <laughs> any law enforcement officials listening to this, uh, you cannot arrest us for this. It is all parody. Yeah, but this is yeah, this is not representative. We're of just opinions. joking around. Where's the legal disclaimer that we can roll on the bottom <laughs> yes. of this? Welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast on the X4 Audio Network. I am your co-host, Neve, and I'm joined, as always, by your co-host, Connor. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, and not, as always, by our guest star, uh, JC. Hello. John I, too, also enjoy all-you-can-eat Chinese food on a train. <laughs> um, it's not all-you-can-eat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and yeah, we, we are talking about the first eight episodes of Bacchano. So, uh, I have you starting us with the synopses here, JC. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, you, so I guess we'll just hop right into, uh, the first episode here, which I love as an intro episode. So like, I think, well, I don't think, I know most episodes <laughs> of any given show usually start by saying, these are your characters, here's a story, here's where you should care. Bacchano kind of takes like a wild swing and that it opens up with like these two characters, um, Gustave St. Germain, the, the vice president of a, of the daily days newspaper, uh, a printing, I guess you would call it a newspaper. Yes. A newspaper that shows up periodically throughout the show and his assistant, Carol, just a literal little girl. Her job is being a little girl, whatever. <laughs> and, um, he basically goes to her and says like, Hey, so I know some shit went down recently. What do you think is the actual story here? Is it these grisly murders that happened on a train? Is it this mafia war that happened in New York as these like three mob families from across like New York, New Jersey, and Chicago all convened together? Is it in the 18th century with these people immigrating on a weird boat? What's the story? And so like, Carol's basically going through like, so these things might be a story, and then he asks, if these are the stories, then who's the main character? And it basically just takes you through, like, like a really, really, really quick rundown of, like, all these characters and who they might be. Not even who they are. It's like, you have Isaac and Miria. Are they just, like, a couple of, like, 
expert thieves or they lay about nothings or there's Thero Provincero is he he seems main character ish so maybe he is the main character just running through all these characters running through all these stories and giving you kind of like the lowdown of like the pitch of the show which is that there is no story there are no main characters and anyone could be a main character and anything could be the story and we're just going to kind of give them to you in a weird mixed up manner and you'll have to decide for yourself and then the title of the episode pops up that says the vice president to say anything about the possibility of him being the main character. <laughs> so the entire first episode is just like an entire just like jumbled. It, it feels like a jumbled mess of just information overload that by the time you're done, you don't even know what to do with the information you just got. But I guess it's appropriate since the show is called Bacchino, which is Italian for ruckus. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, it's funny. JC's come in and like instantly just revolutionized the way that we do our synopses here. Yeah, <laughs> this, I think so. That's that's a synopsis. Let's just get into the let's just get into the discussion. I do really want to talk about this first episode. Like, I, I want I want to know like what did you guys think of this first episode? Especially since I guess like you, Connor, you're coming at it with like fresh eyes, having vague memories of like these pieces and and you being a lot more like like uh fresh to this material almost entirely like what did y'all take away from this first episode coming into this especially from an academic like standpoint so before so let me so given everything you just said about the nature of the show do we want to do let's go through these like plot synopses for for all of the episodes, <laughs> and then once we have it all on the table, let's let's like circle back and then see if we can pick up the pieces. Yeah, because um, it, it, we're I, just I guess like before we like, before we go on, like leaving you first, for dead. <laughs> yeah, my first experience with the first episode was I was just like, I feel like it's accomplishing two things and. Um, or two main things, and one is to, like, disorient you and to, like, introduce you to the idea that this is going to be, like, non-linear, stuff is jumping around, um, and the other big thing is that it's, like, okay, there's, like, some weird thing where people are immortal, is, like, the other big thing you get from it. Uh, I don't know yeah. who's immortal yet, other than I see, like, like, Firo is, um, and... But, like, some of the stuff happens so fast. Like, you, you mentioned when you were doing the synopsis, um, the uh, Miria and um, I'm totally drawing Isaac. 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 Isaac and Miria. Um, and, like, so I watched these first two ones at the, like, bef- long before us watching it for this show, uh, like, back when we first started this podcast. Um, and it w- was also funny then where I, I watched the first one and it was like, wow, there's, like, so much going on. Um, this is just, like, bewildering and delirious with, like, how much is just jumping around. Um, really, the main thing just seems to be, like, these people at the newspaper talking about, like, where do we even start the story for the entire episode? Um, and it's, like, has this, like, dark feeling of, like, oh, there's, like, gore as like people are getting shot up and everything um and then like reforming and i'm like wow this is like a really intense anime and then episode two starts and isaac and miria are just from a completely different show seemingly and i'm like (laughs) okay what the fuck is going on (laughs) we can maybe go into episode two where uh just characters from a completely different show appear 
Um, and yeah, they like very briefly, like you see them being like, are they master thieves? Um, and like, you don't get any of their goofiness in that first episode. Really? No, not really. No. <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to be interesting as we go to discuss Isaac and Miria because they are like, in, in, in many ways they are like centered uh, in the show. And I think that there's a lot of things that are going on with that um, that I don't know if we'll be able to fully suss out until, you know, later on. Well, I mean, episode uh, seven, I believe, is the one that kind of like makes this explicitly clear. We haven't figured this out already, but Isaac and Miria are the Forrest Gump R2-D2 figures of the story and <laughs> that they are the only characters in the entire show that meet every other character in the show. Like, there are characters that will never meet, let alone know that the other character exists, but Isaac and Miria has interaction with everybody by the time the show is over. That's a very good point, and I think I, I hadn't even considered that, um, but they are, like, literally centered in that way, of, like, being yeah. the nexus of, like, all of these characters. Um, and I think that will probably inform like some of our discussion as we go i mean so that being oh sorry oh sorry go ahead we're we're gonna do the same exact thing so with that being said like (laughs) do do we want to read these synopses or yeah we we can run through all of them are we just going for it let's just run through them yeah we can definitely read them because the story does get like it gets twisty and it gets complicated where it's like if you like, that was me kind of, like, remembering, like, the vibe and the tone of this episode. Because, like, this first episode, there was a lot of story being thrown at you. But for a first episode with so many characters, you're not going to hold on to them. I mean, a, a big mystery throughout the entire show. And if you've watched these first episodes, you should kind of be aware of this already. Is that there's a bit of a puzzle to suss out of who is immortal and at what point did they become immortal. And if you go back and watch this first episode with that information in mind... They actually play a lot of those cards up front, and if you know to look out for who's immortal, you can see it all there. Like, I think I always forget the first time I watched this show, I didn't do anything with the fact that very upfront they show you Miza in 1711, and then they flash, flash forward to the 1930s, and so, like, that is your immediate, not even a clue, just straight up telling you, yeah, that guy's immortal, you just saw him 200 years ago, so he has been alive this entire time. Uh, it could have been, like, his, you know... His ancestor. his ancestor, yeah, yeah, but that ambiguity, you know, is it, it's part of the it's part of the puzzle. I mean, you're so disoriented at that point that like you don't even know what to do with with that information. You know, it's only like as, as you know, rewatching it or having you're a very also, good memory. You're like not aware that who is and isn't immortal is going to become more of a like question where you're just like oh i guess there are people who are immortal here i like i'm sure that they'll like continue to make that clear with the characters that that applies to um and then there's this point later on where i was like all right there are there are people where maybe if i go back and watch i will see that like they already told me that they are immortal and yet i'm watching this being like they've done such a like faint on me that i now for the most part, don't even know who like could and couldn't die in this scenario. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from like Fiero's like the big one. Cause it's the first one that you see who like does this regeneration thing. Um, 
but yeah, like, and then of course, as it goes on, we'll get to the point too, where you're like, oh, okay, there, there isn't a way that immortals can die as well. Um, but which we will get to, but, um, okay. Let's do the plot synopses <laughs> because we're like, we're talking around it. I think the plot synopses, as we go through, we're going to like, once we're done with that, we're going to be like, we're going to have yeah. all of this on the table and we're going to be like fully ready to like start grappling with this beast of a show. <laughs> do you, would you like me to formally run to the episode one, one? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Give, right. us, give us Wikipedia synopsis. Okay. So here's feel free to Wikipedia- editorialize as you go. Here's we love that Wikipedia tribute. Here's what Wikipedia Tribune has to say about episode one. The vice president doesn't say anything about the possibility of him being the main character. Mm-mm. In 1932, <laughs> New York City, the vice president of the Daily Days newspaper, Gustave St. Germain, and his assistant, Carol, who, like I said, her job is literally just <laughs> being a little girl, are investigating a series of strange events. They are attempting to decide when these events began, with dates ranging from 1711 to the 1930s, and to choose a main character from about 20 people. It's worth pointing out that when it says the 1930s, it's mainly drawing from about, I'd say, three years? There's like three points between like 1931-30, I believe, are like the three years they're jumping between mainly. Earlier in the mm-hmm. year, a member of the Renorata Mafia family, Gustavo, is searching for Dallas Genoward, and that's very important. I'd say that's probably one of, like, the main, uh, like, I think there's a couple of, like, threads that actually do drive the story forward, and, like, the fate of Dallas Genoward is probably, it's probably the biggest one that is also coincidentally of the least consequence. It's very funny like that. While the yeah. Renoratas fight a turf war with the Gandor Mafia family, resulting in the attempted murder of Luck Gandor and his friend, Thero Thero Prochanzin, I can say it when I'm not thinking about it. I can't when I'm reading it. Prochanzio. It doesn't seem right. Uh, the Martella Camorra. <laughs> His friend Firo. <laughs> His friend Firo. He's the most like generic anime-looking character in the batch, basically. He's the anime um, boy. He is he's the, the anime boy. That's yeah. He's, he's literally. Did you guys watch the sub or the dub? He's a main curiosity? character type. Um, I watched the I, sub. I started with the sub, and then I remembered that people say good things about the dub. Um, and especially since I hadn't seen this before, and I was taking notes as well, I was like, I'm gonna switch to the dub. People say it's good. Uh, I've been okay. enjoying it. Okay, cool. I don't know if you watched the first episode dubbed, but he is literally described as being main character-ish, and I think that's yeah. very correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, that We'll discuss that, I think, in, uh, later. Yeah. So, although the pair, Luck and Fira, receive hundreds of bullet wounds, they completely recover in seconds. In 1931, Fira and his friend Ennis, my personal favorite character in the batch, and his mentor, Misa Avaro, Luck and his two brothers, Keith Gandor and Berga Gandor, await the arrival of the transcontinental train... The flying pussyfoot. Um, Elsewhere, I like I like Ennis a lot too. She definitely has um, like moody anime girl vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, <laughs> I mean, no, <laughs> that's a fully no, interactive. I'm right there. Uh, right there with, yeah. Sorry, your like, intonation ended on a comma there, and it's like, yes, sorry. go on. I'm here for any <laughs> and all Ennis discussion. Um, no, she's great though. Right. Elsewhere, the FBI investigates the bodies and the blood lying by the pussyfoot's tracks and finds a severely injured Lad Russo leveling telling Lua Klein that he will kill her. Um, when you see Lad, like, literally his arm, his arm is, is decimated down to the sinew. Like, you literally see the two bits of, like, bone of his forearm sticking out from it. This is a very, 
very gory show. Um, all right. After the train pulls into New York, Firo, Ennis, and Miza greet Isaac Dion and Miria Harvitt, while a woman in fatigues limps into the station, and Niece Hollystone supports an injured jacuzzi splot. Um, we're going to have to talk about where that name comes from, because I have I would love to know what the thought behind naming your character Jacuzzi Splot, and that's not a nickname. <laughs> I want to know where that came from. I really got to know. Um, um, I mean, it's I will so say, perfect. It I will say Nice Hollystone and Jacuzzi Splot have the most, like, Full Metal Alchemist vibes to me. Like, um, Nice in particular could just be, like, one of the, the like, deadly sins or something. Uh, she just has that vibe. <laughs> Yeah, and Jacuzzi Splat is like a caricature of like a shonen protagonist. Oh, um, Connor, if you're not watching the dub, you're oh, really dub messing out because this, this guy has like <laughs> has like because like the the dub is really good because like Funimation would put like the extra work in to make sure to get people that were like good at doing very era and region appropriate accents, but also kind of like accentuating them with a little bit of kind of like a touch of like something like the Untouchables to it to kind of be like. This mm-hmm. is this is 1930s America, but like have fun with it. And like yeah. Jacuzzi's plot's voice actor is like, it's like if Meowth from Pokemon was a human man. It's kind of <laughs> great. <laughs> well, he's also like constantly extremely nervous. Which mm-hmm. um, today at the time that we're recording, which for listeners was like months ago, um, there's a thread going around because it's Orson Welles Day of um, Orson Welles talking shit about people. And the first one was, was Woody Allen, which, fuck that guy. Uh, but I just want to read this because I, I feel like some of this um, actually ends up describing like who Jacuzzi is to me as this has gone on, uh, where Orson Welles, like, he says, um, I'm just going to I'm gonna say what Orson Welles says, but I'm going to replace Woody Allen with Jacuzzi Splot. <laughs> I hate Jacuzzi Splot physically. I dislike that kind of man. Uh, I can hardly bear to hear him talk. He has the Chaplin disease, the particular combination of arrogance and timidity that sets my teeth on edge. Uh, the person talking to him, he's not arrogant, he's shy. <laughs> he is arrogant. Like all people with timid personalities, his arrogance is unlimited. Anybody who speaks quietly and shrivels in a, uh, up in company is unbelievably arrogant. He acts shy, but he's not. He's scared. He hates himself, and he loves himself. A very tense situation. <laughs> it's people like me who have to carry on and pretend to be modest. To me, it's the most embarrassing thing in the world. A man who presents himself as his wor- at his worst to get laughs in order to free himself from his hangups. Everything he does on this screen is therapeutic. <laughs> Now, see, if you really want this to wow. land, you have to read that quote like Lad Russo, because that sounds like a thing yeah. that Lad would say about Jacuzzi. Um, but he does have this, like, it, as it goes on, it becomes revealed of like, oh, when I lose control, you know, he's like that kind of character. Um, mm-hmm. And it, he's just like, it's just very funny of this, like, oh, I'm always so nervous. <laughs> he's just yeah. constantly fighting through his tears at any given moment. Yeah. Uh, but in this way, where it's just like, you're up to no good. <laughs> yeah true i that that's i think that's an interesting take on him my take on him was like it's like if you just crossed shaggy with a anime like a shonen protagonist yeah like like if shaggy and fred were the same person somehow yeah yeah and also like like you know midoriya as well there's a lot of midoriya to him it's it's very it's very early stage Midoriya when Midoriya is very much like a wimp who doesn't want to who who's too afraid to fight. He's not he's he wants to but he's not ready to step up yet. Yeah, um, yeah but like if you if you hurt my friends, I'll just like go into fight or flight mode and and like fight you and somehow win. 
Uh, the last sentence of the synopsis is also playing it really close to the chest. I think it's leaving out a lot of information here. It says, Chesla Meyer also steps off of the train. Um, what's really important here is that uh, when Miza and Firo are heading to the train station to meet Isaac and Miria, Miza also points out that he too has a, has a longtime friend who was on this train. And as I pointed out, early on, earlier on in the episode, it is shown that Miza is on the boat in like the 1700s and so like you know that he's been alive for well i guess you don't know you might not know it at this point that he's been alive for 200 years but you might have this inkling suspicion that like miza has a lot of ulterior motives that he's not sharing with Firo or the audience just quite yet and so you find out that the friend he's waiting to meet at the last minute is chesla Myers. like the show literally ends with like a da 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 like <laughs> literally like that kind of music cue as chesla steps out so it's supposed to kind of be like the big like uh-huh. um What's the mystery of this? Especially since one of the first things you see in the episode, I believe, is you see him get his, like, head blown off by a shotgun. Yeah, by I was going to say, so. it, yeah. I think Cheslov is the the kid who you see get shot in the head um, and then later reforms because he has a mortal power. So, I mean, like I said, like, I, I love this episode as a big, like, the more times I rewatch this show, the more I kind of really like this episode because, like, I think where it's really successful is that it does a really good job of establishing the rules and the tone of the show. It's like, you know, there's like an opening shot that has kind of like um, an anime style montage of uh, the 1930s in America. So you see, you know, you see people standing in line waiting for food and jobs. It's the Great Depression. Um, you see gangsters shooting up places, shooting up speakeasies and like people transporting like um, hooch, like bootleggers doing stuff and whatnot. Like it does a really, really good job of setting up like that fantasy Hollywood version of uh prohibition era new york like you have an idea of the time but also that this is also a fantasy version of this time it's not historically accurate but the history does inform the world it lives in and also grounds it as well but they also do set up the tone of like this is a violent and a cruel world like we literally were just talking about like a 12 year old getting shot in the face with a shotgun and like the show never languishes in the intensity of the violence like it's not a show that like lavishes in the violence in an almost pornographic manner there just is violence in this show you see Firo get his fingers cut off and they just look like sausages you'll you'll see people get crushed and there'll be blood and sometimes like dismemberments will be obscured which i think is pretty powerful for the course for japanese media actually but you'll still see like a beaten bloody face or broken teeth or like bones or whatever like you'll see that stuff so it's going to be intense it's going to be bloody but it's also set in a fantasy world of a country that you may be familiar with or that you might even live in if you're watching it overseas who knows (laughs) yeah um Um, jc i just have to say like your your love for like the construction of this narrative is is so great (laughs) well i mean it's so infectious I mean, what's great about it is that, like, this show trained me to be ready for other shows down the road. Because, like, I remember when the fourth season of Arrested Development came out on Netflix and everybody was like, what the fuck is this shit? Why do they tell the story like this? And immediately I was like, holy shit, they're doing a Baccano. They're telling this show like Baccano. They're doing it, like, non-linearly character by character. And I was immediately on board with that. Or, like, a better version like, of that same storytelling is... um. If you if either of y'all played um Thirteen Sentinels, Thirteen Sentinels does this exact same thing with like with the same level of success. Like Thirteen Sentinels does this non-linear giant cast thing really, really well too. I'm just imagining you going around to all the like arrested development 
fans and being like, what? Like, haven't you ever seen Bakano or played 13 Sentinels? It's like <laughs> you've never even seen Bakano. <laughs> Uh, okay, episode two. Um, the uh, the title is Setting the Old Woman's Qualms Aside. The Flying Pussyfoot Departs. What a wild and name for this ni- train, by the way. Uh, I don't yeah. know if it's actually... Wait, can you can you like explain what that title means? Because I don't think this actually like is... No, no, it's explaining the... No, go have the synopsis. I want to show the synopsis coming yeah, up. Yeah, it's the right old there. psychic woman. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe she's 19th, the main character. Yeah, it all depends on who's telling the story, I guess. Um I don't know, maybe we'll talk about that. Um, in late 1931, the Pussyfoot is leaving Chicago, despite a woman's prediction that the train is cursed and that those who survive the trip are either lucky or not human. Prior to this, Isaac and Miria are unsuccessful in their search for gold in California. After receiving a letter from Ennis in New York City, they wish to return to Manhattan, and realizing they have no money, decide to rob a train. Instead, the pair steal money from two mafia hitmen in Chicago, uh, dressed as, uh, I think it's, is it Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb? I can't remember That's the right. exact. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, um, it's worth pointing out every time Ed's Gamiria pull off some sort of job, they're wearing the dumbest costume possible. And this extends to the opening in which, uh, Isaac loses a game of rock, paper, scissors, and he has to dress up like what I can only describe as looking like, um, what is it? A Not shitty Jack Halloween Frost. costume? No, no. Who's the, the, the <laughs> Nia, you got me on this. Not Jack Frost, but the other one, the pumpkin. Oh, one. Jack Skellington. No, wait. That no, is what they call Jack Skellington. <laughs> the because like there's Jack Frost, he's a snowman one, and there's a pumpkin one that goes with it. It seems like Jack O'Hall oh, no. or something like that. Um. Oh, in in uh in in Shimagami Tensei. Yeah. Um. That is Black Frost, I think. Thank you. Yes. Like Isaac is basically dressed like Black Frost, and Mary no, no, is dressed Frost, like uh, which... Santa now, Claus. Now I'm um. Oh, this might be the the jack o' lantern one. Um, Con- consult the archives. Yeah. Um, <laughs> while you do that, uh, the um, yeah jack o' lantern. Pyro Jack is the the U.S. name usually because mm, of space there. constraints. Mm. Um. So yeah. Uh. With this with this costume, the baseball costume, um, the pair steal the money from two mafia hitmen in Chicago. And take the pussyfoot to New York. Nice, Jacuzzi, and their gang, along with Cheshaw, Chess, Law, Lad, and Lua, uh, Senator Biriam's wife, Natalie, and daughter, Mary, and an orchestra that includes Shane Laforette, also board the train, while the woman in fatigue sneaks on. Um, all of these characters will come up later, so, you know, just... Just let it flow over you right now. Yeah. Um, uh, Woman in Fatigue to- also has big, like, designed by Hiromu Arakawa vibes. <laughs> and is also, it is not named um, yeah. in the opening montage, which uh, is probably important. She is not. Um, two conductors, a young redhead and an older dark-haired one, relieve a retiring conductor <laughs> from his shift. Shortly after, uh- the retiring conductor is killed <laughs> by, the, by the young redhead conductor, and his uniform is stolen Wait, by the redhead no, no. conductor. He's not killed by the redhead conductor. Um, there is like the people in the quote unquote, not the orchestra. So Lad's gang is getting on the train and Lad has a, Lad is really violent and he has a bunch of followers that just like how violent he is. And it's one of Lad's followers that kills the yeah. other conductor. Oh, you, yeah, um, you're right. You're right. I, and he I steals, wrote in my he notes. Because uh, right before this happens, the, the really old retired 
they say retiring conductor. He is like, ah, oh, you know, this will be my last train ride. I'm handing it over to you two. Um, you know, I, I'm just old and it's some time for me to retire. And I wrote in my he notes, was, he was this one guy, train ride this for guy retirement. is, yeah, I'm like, something really bad is going to happen to this guy. This guy's uh, did die. not expect it would be this fast. <laughs> yeah. No, JC, you're right. It is. So it's one of the Russos. It's not yeah. the redhead conductor. Although like that guy's also doing some sketch shit. Um, the, it's one of the Russos, like, kills him and steals his uniform. Um, in the dining car, Nice, Jacuzzi, Cheslaw, Natalie, and Mary hear Isaac and Miria tell the story of the Rail Tracer, a monster that eats train passengers. By the way, every time we say Rail Tracer, we have to, we have to say it like that. Like, Rail Tracer. Oh, no, I'm gonna um, say, if I'm gonna say it, I'm gonna say it like the way Jacuzzi Splot does in the dub where he's like, it's the Rail Tracer! Like, that's how you gotta say Rail Tracer. <laughs> right, I, think, I, I think you've convinced me to switch the dub with that yeah. impression. The dub um, is very good. The dub is great. <laughs> Jacuzzi is scared witless, as you, as you can perceive from JC's impression there. Um, but John Pennell, or Panel, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> I didn't know um, this had a name. I didn't either. <laughs> Some like deep light novel lore in here. <laughs> yeah, Hokuto's lackey. Um, the the tra- uh, the train's bartender and a member of Jacuzzi's gang uh, reveals the young conductor knows how to avoid being eaten. Jacuzzi runs off to find the young conductor, so he's running into the back of the train um, and runs into Lad, who recognizes him. Uh, meanwhile, the older conductor holds the young conductor at gunpoint. Right. Once, Which once is again, ex- the reasons yeah. for this is explained in the conversation that they have that we're not going to put in the synopsis <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, I was about you to know. say, they're doing it again where it's like the last biggest twist of the thing is like, that's a very important, like, the conversation them holding them up because like, it explains, because like, there's basically three factions on this train. There's Lad and his followers which i guess gets explained in the next episode there's the um devotees of huey laferay who's an immortal who's promised like these people basically immortal life or the secrets of immortal life if they do his bidding and then there's jacuzzi splot and his gang of bootleggers and so like you find out that the conductor is allied with the with the basically the cultists who were there on behalf of Huey Laferay, and he's ready he's basically ready to ride this train to hell in the name of Huey and so like that's why he's got the other conductor at gunpoint. It's like, that seems kind of very important. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, episode three. Uh, Randy and Pacho. I don't even remember these people. Oh, Who? You, oh, these are the guys. With these, oh, I guess they'll come up, in, they'll come up in, the, in, the, in, the, in the synopsis. You'll remember these guys. Yeah. Uh, are, getting be- uh, are busy getting ready for the party. Um, in 1932, Eve Genoard anxiously watches men dredge the Hudson River. Um, this also came up briefly in the, the first episode, I think, um, in 1930, Dallas is beating a, uh, member, but luck stops him, um, aboard the pussyfoot in 1931, lad tells Lua that he will kill everyone in the world and then slowly kill her as a sign of his love. Um, he leaves to check the dining car and bumps into Jacuzzi. He remembers that Jacuzzi is wanted by the Russos and as Luo follow him. In 1930, two Martillo accidentally set a warehouse on fire. Uh, beneath the warehouse, an old man named Barnes uh, has created an immortality elix- elixir, uh, but is only able to escape with two bottles. 
1931, he visits the Daily Days, which is also an information broker for information on Dallas. Uh, in 1930, there's a, there's a lot of jumping back and forth between time <laughs> in this one. Um, in 1930, Firo sees the warehouse fire and goes to investigate. He bumps into Ennis and chases her to try and return a bottle she dropped. Uh, instead, he finds Dallas attacking Barnes and incapacitates him. Uh, 1931, aboard the Pussyfoot, uh, niece asks Nick, a member of her gang, to take care of the dining car, and he <laughs> takes, uh, uh, which he takes to mean hold the passengers hostage. Uh, there's a great little moment where he's like trying to talk through the different <laughs> scenarios of what could that have meant, um, and just like obviously lands on the the like most likely to have terrible consequences one. Um, in 1932, the Daily Days is unable to help Eve. In 1930, Dallas catches Barnes uh, once again, kills him, and takes the bottles of elixir from him, mistaking them for alcohol. Uh, Aboard the Pussyfoot, the Russos, the orchestra members, uh, who are the Lemires in disguise, um, and Nick attempt to... Lemires being the the devotees of Huey LaForet. Yeah. Yes. Uh, There is a great moment in uh, episode two, I think, where... um, I think my favorite characters in the show so far, Isaac and Miria are like, Oh wow. It looks like there's like a wedding or something. <laughs> and then it, like, there's like a, a orchestra members. This is going to be such a like great party. <laughs> Lots of fun on this train. And I'm just like, all right guys. <laughs> um, anyway, we get to the day. <laughs> um, they attempt to take the dining car hostage. Uh, Nick, only armed with a knife, sees that the Russos and Lemures are better armed and flees. In 1930, uh, Ennis finds Barnes recovering body uh, on the pussyfoot. Jacuzzi discovers the conductor's mutilated bodies. So uh, who are who are Randy and Pecho here? Um, those to- the two. Those are the two guys who are hanging outside of the place. When he, the guy's like, "Look at this trick I can do," and he sets his glove on fire. And the guy's <laughs> oh, like, "I can do yes. it too." And he's like, "Randy, you idiot! My glove was leather. That's a cotton glove." And then his glove catches on fire, causing the fire. <laughs> that when Barnes is completing his life's work, the entire place just catches on fire, which is just like the most relatable. Like, man. This is my one fear t-shirt to just complete my life's work, and then the building I'm in just immediately catches on fire. Yeah, and then Barnes delivers, like, the incredibly comical line of, like, no, like, why now? (laughs) (laughs) Why? How? The timing is horrible, but... It's like the Chicago fire getting started because a cow kicked over a lantern, uh, Mm -hmm. but the cow is two dumbasses. (laughs) (laughs) It's like lighting their gloves on fire. Um, That scene and the scene with um, Nick and the knife are two of the scenes in this entire show that no matter what always elicit just like the biggest laughs from me. Uh, Like I love the energy so much of like, um, because what like the Russos come in and they're like, they're like, everybody down on the ground. And then like the, the Lemires come in, they're like, everybody hands in the air and then nick comes in and it's like okay nobody say a thing and as the is just kind of like we're gonna do all three of them and then yep. nick looks around and he goes i'm so sorry to bother you and he turns <laughs> around and leaves. I'll, I'll bow out of this yeah uh, uh, when this yeah. show wants to go for funny it 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 lands it this show it it shouldn't be as funny as it is when it goes for it but it does land it when it goes for it and i love it so much for doing that yeah God bless. Yeah. Barnes being uh, like, no, this is the worst possible thing that could happen <laughs> right at this moment. 
Yeah, when <laughs> when Isaac and Maria show up in episode two, I'm like, oh, like there's a point where because the beginning of them is just like pure comedy stuff. Um, and one, it's like a bit of a whiplash from episode one. Um, but then I'm like, oh, okay, like it seems like they're just going to be the comic relief characters and like, you know, they're going to show up and stuff will be funny when they're around. Um, and the stuff that happens with Nick just feels like, Oh no, this show is just going to sometimes have a sense of humor, which is, is good. I don't know if I would be able to like fully sit through some of the, the show if there weren't moments where like they mix it up a little bit and make you laugh. Cause, um, that first episode is just like dark in a way where I was like, Oh man, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to show that's just this all the time. No, I have I have tried to recommend this show to people before, and I think like the first episode and a half or so is enough to kind of have some people kind of feel like, well, I don't know if the tone of this is like right for me. And rewatching this now, like I I hate telling people to stick with the show because I feel like it's such like a disrespect for like their time. But sometimes you kind of get to give people like a fair heads up, and I would feel comfortable saying it in this show of like stick it out to the third episode because by episode three that's when they start really speeding up the whole like jumping back and forth in time that's when there's like a lot more humor inserted to it and that's when you start seeing how like these coincidences start stacking up on top of each other to create the events that is the story of this show like if you can make it to episode three by that point you should know enough about the characters to know whether or not if you like them or not but also too you should be like adjusted like calibrated to the rhythm of this show and if you don't like it at this point it's like jump ship you're fair but by episode three it's like this is where it's cooking with gas like this is the point where bacchano becomes bacchano yeah um you want to do episode four absolutely positively i do um episode four lad russo enjoys talking a lot and slaughtering a lot on the pussyfoot lad hears gunfire from the dining car and gets excited in Chicago, 10 hours before the Pussyfoot departs, Don Russo learns that a couple stole his money, that couple being uh, Isaac and Miria, and that one of his men was attacked by Jacuzzi. His grief is compounded when Lad tells him that he plans to hijack the Pussyfoot simply for the carnage it will create. Um, Lad, Lad is as psychopathic as a character could possibly get. He just he's, he's an assassin for the Russos, and he just loves killing. He just loves to kill. That's what he does. Yeah. Um, so, uh, his grief... Sorry, I lost my place here. His grief is compounded when Lad tells him he's trying to head to the car. Right. In the in the dining car, the woman in fatigues climbs out a window, and Lad, Lad learns that the Lemires are trying to hijack the train as well. It is revealed that the Lemires are hijacking the train in order to get Senator Birium to, rep- to release their imprisoned leader, Huey Laferay. In 1932... Eve leaves the Daily Days while the two receptionists, Nicholas Wayne and Eline Duga, note that the information on Dallas is classified because he may be immortal. In 1930, Isaac and Miria encounter Firo and Miza outside the hat shop. After buying various hats and masks, they dream about a wealthy future, but then are then hit by a slow-moving car. In the car, Ennis ignores the pair and drives Sillard's quates to the secret society of old men. Aboard the Pussyfoot, Pussyfoot, <laughs> the Lemures report to Goose, the Lemure who organized the hijacking. Janae leaves the car, and Goose admits that he plans to kill her. In 1930, Zillard announces to the secret society that the elixir has been perfected. With it, they will not age, which was not the case with the incomplete elixir that they had previously consumed. They actually have, like, a little anecdote that kind of explains this really well, because, like, it's basically, like, a society of, like, rich old white elites who are 
hungry for this elixir and they note that there was one guy who died in the previous year because his elixir was incomplete um i believe it was that he would still heal but he still aged so he just died of old age at that point right he tells ennis to fetch barnes who has it siller tells ennis this siller tells ennis to fetch barnes who has the elixir ennis reaches the burning warehouse and runs into Firo. In 1931, Nice and a member of their gang, Donnie, search for Jacuzzi in the conductor's car while something watches them from outside the train. So, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of table setting in this episode, particularly with yeah. like the fact that this is when they make it really clear that there is immortality, Zillard is immortal, and that immortality can be gained by drinking this elixir. Like, it's... this Again, this is the point where the show is cooking with gas, but this is a lot of, like, uh narrative set dress in here yeah it's interesting though like because i since you're watching the dub um it's interesting how the pronunciations vary because like in the sub um it's like gillard or like shillard um yeah whereas like i'm i'm gathering that like it's like zillard in the or in the in the dub, it's like Zillard, but in like the Japanese, it's like Gillard. I mean that that that, uh, that makes sense. I'm not really quite sure if there's like a katakana uh, character that would be a good um, replacement for that sound. I'm I'm not entirely sure where Zillard is supposed to be from because when we see the ship in the seventeen in the in the 1700s, um, that's something I was trying to pay attention to was whether or not like hey are all these people like from Italy or what. It just kind of seems to be a hodgepodge of various Europeans and one Australian. So I'm not entirely sure where Zillard is supposed to be from with a name like that. Yeah, yeah I think that's it's, it's that last like name Serbian. is. Yeah, it's like Hungarian or Serbian. It's like kind of the. It's like an Eastern European name. Um, that would make sense. But yeah. It, um. One of these things is like to some degree, um, cause there was, I, I listened to a little bit of the beginning in Japanese and then, um, switched over to the dub and did notice that there were a few things that seemed different, but sometimes this happens just because of the one, the way that like kind of kind of works can sometimes make things a little unusual. Um, and then also some of it is like, it could be like, Oh, okay. Like maybe he's named after this after like, some person who also has this name historical figure wise. Um, this happens a lot with like Gundam stuff as well, where they will mm-hmm. name something after like, you know, a general or something that, that existed. Um, and then they don't really know how to pronounce that name all the time. And so then you get like the Katakana form that's close, but a little bit off. Um, and then it becomes like, okay, when you localize it, you probably just want to do it. Like the, the name would be like, for the original person they're named after, but then it, it does end up being weird or different in Japanese. So, um, but so I mean, this also happens anytime that you try and name something after an old person and don't necessarily know how their name was pronounced. So, yeah, there is a, there's a famous phys- like physicist apparently. Yeah. But I, I just found out cause I looked it up named Zillard or Zillard from Hungary. Right. So I, I take it. It's, um, okay, that would that makes sense. Yeah, that that was something I, um, I picked up. Yeah, on, he worked. Just the he worked on that, the atom like, bomb. Um, it looks like. 
Uh, um, I, I okay. have to wonder if maybe there's like a connection there with like this implication of um, being involved in the creation of um, something that has the potential to damn humanity. Is this is this elixir in the same way that like the nuclear bomb possibly have? I have to wonder if maybe that's a connection that like the original author is trying to to make by naming that character after that guy. Potentially. Yeah. Well, and some of this too is stuff where like um, I know somebody who who one of the things that they do is like working for things and um getting like okay here's the character we've conceived of and we need a name for it and a lot of that is like okay like what's going on with this character and you might pull something that has an association even if you're not like directly doing that Mm. um and i feel like some of that has probably come up here although again no idea where the name jacuzzi splot comes from (laughs) (laughs) yeah that one that one seems like they they kind of just invent it uh yeah for the character, because um, like jacuzzi well, I mean, is from course... Ch- jacuzzi is from Chicago, and I I must say, since living in Chicago, I've not met anybody with a name with jacuzzi splot. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, you don't okay, know jacuzzi splot from the <laughs> the East Side splots. <laughs> the, the, the East Side um, splots. How can I forget? <laughs> uh chicago famously so, does not have an east side um just to to really amp it up um, yeah from the from the from the lake you know yeah the lake street uh well lake street's actually a street okay we're getting way <laughs> we're getting sidetracked here <laughs> um speaking of jacuzzi epi- splot episode five episode five jacuzzi splot cries gets scared and musters reckless valor one day before the pussyfoot's departure Jacuzzi is attacked by Russo hitmen, who are then killed by Nice and the gang. On the pussyfoot, Nice and Donnie find Jacuzzi in the conductor's car. He believes that the real tracer is aboard the train. Um, the conductors are dead at this point, by the way. Yes. Um, which is why he believes it's real tracer. Um, when he learns about the Russos and the Lemures, he decides to protect the passengers in the dining car. In 1930, Barnes awakens to find himself among the members of his secret of this, as JC put it, the society of old men. Um, <laughs> of old rich white men. <laughs> yes, exactly. The the orm orm Yeah. That didn't work out as well as I was hoping. <laughs> um Gillard uh places his right hand on Barnes's head and devours him. Uh which we come to under we come to find out is the only way to kill an immortal. Um and also uh allows the eater devourer to absorb the memories um, of the the victim um, so in, in doing this Zillard uh, you know absorbs Barnes's memories and under finds the location of the elixir which is in Dallas's hands um, he sends Ennis to find Dallas and tells her that a man Firo uh, who, who we know to be Firo uh, is looking for her to return this button she dropped for some reason Um in 1931, Gustavo learns that he will be killed if he does not find Dallas. He visits the Daily Days personally and successfully extorts information from Nicholas. Nicholas tells him that the Gandors are connected to Dallas's disappearance and suggests kidnapping Eve to draw Dallas out. Don Bartolo Runarada, the founder of the Runarada family, learns from Senator Biriam that Dallas is partially immortal. In 1930, Firo is inaugurated into the Camorra. After swearing in, uh, after completing the oath of the Kimura and injuring Miza in a knife fight, 
He notices afterward that Mize's injury heals instantly. The Don fires a celebratory pistol shot, accidentally shooting Isaac upstairs. Uh, at which point we overhear um, Miria yelling, Isaac's dead, or Isaac's been killed. Um, on the pussyfoot, Natalie tells Mary and Cheslaw to hide, and the Lemures take control of the dining car immediately after, discovering that the woman in fatigues is missing. They issue orders to find her, but something starts killing the Lemures. Uh, it's, uh, it's worth pointing out too that like these titles are great, but each title kind of gets a very um, always sunny style uh, drop, I suppose. Where kind of like a scene plays out, and then it just kind of drops the title cold against the black screen, just kind of like to act as a punchline to the event you just saw unfold. <laughs> There's also um, the next time on always has uh, Isaac and Miria like reading the title and being like, oh, that doesn't sound good, or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, what do you think that means? <laughs> like, the, like, the crucial crux to, like, their relationship is that um, Isaac is always explaining stuff. He, I mean, basically, he is the most likable mansplainer in that he just tries to explain stuff, but he's always wrong about it, and Miria always backs him up. And even if she corrects him on him being wrong, he just wheels it around to him still being correct. And she's like, no, yeah, that makes sense. So it's them <laughs> doing this for every title the week before the episode would air. Yeah. Um, it's like one of the big examples of this being the uh, part where, where Isaac is like, we're going to do a train robbery, which I think is when we take a tr- train somewhere, do a robbery, and then get back on the train. And he's <laughs> like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then later, like, this seems like a great train to do our robbery. And she's like, that's when we we already did the robbery. Now we're getting on the train, right? And he's like, "Yeah, that's how the train robbery works." <laughs> um, anyway, episode six: the rail tracer covertly, repeatedly slaughters inside the coaches. Um, in 1932, Nicholas and Elion report to the director that Gustavo knows about Eve. Aboard the Pussyfoot, the rail tracer, uh, appearing as a human silhouette, continues to kill the Lemires. As the woman in fatigues is climbing along the bottom of the train, she meets the rail tracer. Um, he, like, I think whispers something to her, and she seems shocked. Um, after it speaks to her, she quickly scurries away, screaming. Yeah, there we go. Uh, 1930, <laughs> Dallas asks Luck to help him punish Firo, not realizing that they are friends. Uh, he is thrown out, leaving the elixir at the Gandor hideout. In 1931, Cheslov hides Mary in a closet uh, because he revealed his true name in the dining car. He knows that there is an immortal in that car and leaves to look for them. Um, then Nice, Jacuzzi, and Donnie rescue a captured Nick. Uh, when Nick sees blood pooling out of another cabin, uh, Lad walks out of the cabin and says he is not responsible for it. Mary is discovered by Russo, who is then killed by Shanae. Um... In 1930, Dallas encounters Isaac and Miria and begins to be Isaac. Uh, then in 1932, Gustavo lures Eve with information about Dallas and kidnaps her. On the pussyfoot, Jacuzzi and the group enter the cabin, uh, finding it covered floor to ceiling with blood. While vomiting out the window, Nick notices something climbing along the train. The group believes that it is the rail tracer. Uh, in 1930, Ennis finds Dallas beating Isaac uh, while... While incapacitating Isaac, or while incapacitating Dallas, she inadvertently rescues uh, Isaac, um, and this 
ties into the the whole reason why they did this like giant heist is they wanted to get a present for Ennis. Uh, the reason why Isaac and Miria did this, because um, Ennis is their friend. Uh, as simple as that. I and, wish Ennis was my friend. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Uh, I wish all three of these were my friend. Like their friendship, uh, quote unquote, is one of my favorite things in this show so far. Mm-hmm. Um, just as like a weird thing that is popping up. Um, in 1932, uh, Nicholas Elian and the director speculate on possible outcomes of Eve's kidnapping. Uh, the director indicates that he wishes to avoid conflict between the Gandors and the Runaradas. Uh, he states that the legendary assassin Vino is traveling to New York aboard the Pussyfoot on Luke's request. In 1930, at the Secret Society, Ennis injects Dallas with the incomplete elixir. So... Two things the synopsis, I think, leaves out that's worth noting is that this is when Vlad explicitly confronts uh, Jacuzzi as recognizing him as the guy who, like, just recently took out, like, a bunch of his guys and a bunch of his speakeasies. Also, too, that the editor-in-chief, the director of the Daily Days, is a Home Improvement uh, Wilson-style figure <laughs> who was perpetually obscured by just an entire stack of newspapers at his desk, which I absolutely love. <laughs> And there's a whole like subplot with the da- the daily days that is like I don't it's not really brought out in these synopses, but like yeah, there's also like a subplot of tension between like Nicholas and like engineering like motivating this kidnapping and then Ilion like not wanting it to happen and then like, the director like allowing it and like, like the daily but, like the oh go sorry sorry oh no no I yeah go for it. Yeah, I was gonna say the Daily Days is basically like a bootlegger of information. Like that's kind of the vibe mm-hmm. I get from them because like all their writers are armed to the teeth. They 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 make it very clear that they have information, but they'll only share it with the right people when they need to because like they're journalists. They're there to to write the truth and to sell a paper. They aren't there to just kind of act as like information brokers unless somebody comes along with the right price or the right amount of muscle. <laughs> Um, do we want to do yeah episode seven yeah let's go on to episode seven everything starts about everything starts aboard the advena avis so this is a really important episode in 1711 misa leads alchemists aboard the ship advena avis including zillard and chesla and summoning a demon to obtain eternal life um i feel like it's kind of implied that this demon is satan i think they just call him the devil and it's like, I don't know if it's like a like an exorcist thing where it's like they think it's Satan, but it's just like a lower level demon, or if this is supposed to implicitly be Satan himself. But one way or another, yeah. the demon grants them an elixir. He instructs the immortals on how to devour other immortals, gaining the devoured immortals, uh, get, gaining the devoured immortals' abilities and knowledge. And tells them that they can only use their real name when speaking to one another. So that's how that's how Chesla in the present knows that there is another immortal aboard the train. He then gives Miza the elixir's formula, but only Miza alone. Miza decides that no one else must become immortal and is supported by most of the passengers. One passengers one passenger, Huey Laferay, suspends his vote and Sillard firmly opposes. Later, Miza shares his half of the formula with his brother, Gretto, unaware that other passengers are being devoured by Zillard. Later, 
Misa attempts to devour Zillard, but is stopped by Elmer Albatross, who I believe is the uh, Australian dude. Um, also, Elmer Albatross sounds remarkably like it could be a Mega Man X uh, villain. They then discovered <laughs> that Zillard is not in his room, and they look for him. Zillard devours Gretto and discovers that Sylvie Lumiere, Lumiere Gretto's lover, is not immortal. He discovers this when he tries to consume uh, Sylvie, which immortals devour each other by placing their hand on the other immortal's head and thinking, I want to eat. And so he tries to do that, and his head, his hand basically explodes. How he that, That's how he realizes that when the devil was offering the panacea to everybody that Sylvie actually abstained from drinking it herself, at least at that point in time. Um, Elmer tries to convince Zillard to stop, but the two fall off the ship. The demon, fascinated by Elmer's stupidity, <laughs> yes, this is worth pointing out because, like, they're trying to chase down Zillard from, like, because he's been eating people, and it's like, we got you quartered now, Zillard, and Zillard's, like, about to, like, strike, and Elmer is doing it he's doing like handstands on the rigging of the ship in the rain and he just slips and falls and hits his head and falls in the water Elmer's like wait wait I can convince this monster (laughs) to to become a good person again let me do a handstand really quick I sincerely do not know what his plan was in that situation it is genuinely baffling (laughs) the demon fascinated by Elmer's stupidity grants him one wish in 1930 Misa and a martello Ronnie Sukiart uh, Ronnie, who's Ronnie? Oh, well, discuss the dangers of fighting with the Runaradas. I can't remember who Ronnie is. I actually remember who this is. Misa and oh, well, when Misa leaves the room, Ronnie. Oh, I remember who this guy is now. When Misa leaves the room, Ronnie comments that Zillard is close by, and I think Zillard is aware that Z- uh, Ronnie is aware that Zillard is an immortal. I don't know if I'm entirely sure how, but that is something that he is basically aware of. Um. Something that this uh, synopsis doesn't really quite point out that's of note of this episode, too. Um, this is the first episode in a string of episodes that doesn't really jump back and forth in time. You're shown the, you're shown the events of the Advienas of these in very linear fashion, for the most part. There's a little non-linear storytelling here, but you're in one space, you're seeing the events fold out pretty linearly, and you're finally getting, like... Like, I... I wouldn't call Bakken a Skinnerbox show. I think it's really easy to mistake it as being based on a Skinnerbox concept, but this is where you get a lot of answers for a lot of questions you might have had at this point. And this episode ends with showing you a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, passengers of the ship in the 1930s, as they may be, including Sylvie. So I guess at some point she did actually consume some of the uh, panacea, some of the elixir. But uh, it gives you like a little bit of like a, a flash forward of these characters. But this is something that unfortunately the show is not really going to dive back into. But it comes up a bit more in like the light novels. But hey, these guys are still around and kicking in 1930. They're still immortal. Um, there's definitely a fear of like once people start eating each other that it's just going to become an endless cycle. Like it's something that Misa is fearing because like there's an element to him and his brother discussing like hey, Misa, you're the one who has information, and they think Zillard is going to kill somebody, and they're like, well, you should get Zillard because before Zillard gets you, and Misa's very clear about the fact that, like, as the person who is entrusted with this knowledge, he can't be the one to kick this off, because once it starts, there's no getting off. So, really cool episode. Love this one. It's 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 kind of like the... It's definitely like the turning point where... If you haven't been putting together like answers to the questions yet, you're definitely doing it by now. 
Yeah. It's also yeah, I think there's like this this was interesting too, because at this point I was starting to get a clearer sense of like who is immortal. Um and you you see before this Ziller do the like devouring and stuff, but like it was it was unclear to me until this episode that that's just a thing that all immortals are able to do. I guess it's still unclear if like people with the imperfect version of the elixir can do that. Um, but you know, you, you see him doing this and it's like, Oh, okay. Like there's some, there's one really powerful guy and who knows, like, you know, maybe he is a demon or something. And then you, you get to this one and you're like, Oh shit. Like, no, all of these, all of these immortals can't kill these other immortals if they just know what to do. Um, and it just like completely changed again where at a, for a while I was like, oh, okay, I'm getting a clearer sense of like, here's everybody who's safe. Um, mm-hmm. and then it, that like changes again. Um, yeah, like, like this, this is the, this is the, this is the episode that gives you the information that like, now you're kind of playing a little game of werewolf with yourself to figure out who the immortals are based on how they could have gotten this formula. Yeah. Um, it's also like one thing I wanted to mention too, which, you know, I wasn't sure how much it was going to develop either, or if this comes up in other things as well, but like when the demon shows up or their devil or whatever, um, actually has this whole conversation of like, or this whole thing of like, oh, like basically I, I have many names and like, whatever I'm appearing as like a demon because that's like what you want to think of me as or whatever. Um, or like you I already think, decided to call me a demon and like, I don't agree, but whatever. Yeah. I'll let you call them, call me that. Um, in this way where too, there was a part of me that was like, is this what happens when you just like become an immortal for so long and you've just eaten so many other immortals that like you just become whatever this weird godlike being is. Cause you keep like accruing, mm. um, knowledge and and experiences and everything um but i and it's a thing where i don't know how much this is going to get explained at all um but i thought that was interesting and then also being like there's ways that they are portraying this like demon that are lining up with the the rail tracer again don't know if that connection will get drawn or not but um what was another thing that i started thinking about um yeah actually i actually forgot because like this synopsis doesn't actually point this out that um one of the last things that happens in the episode is after the demon talks to Elmer, the demon does then have an exchange with Huey kind of talking about like um, how Louis, how Huey kind of like abstained from like the vote on the ship earlier and how um, the demon makes it clear. He doesn't make it clear. He just kind of implies that this is not the first time he's decided to grace humans with the recipe for the grand panacea um that like because he's like oh i'm surprised that it happened this fast where people started eating each other usually it takes a little longer than this and huey's kind of like what do you mean a little longer don't and the demon's kind of like i don't know consider it just like a morbid curiosity maybe i just have too much faith in humans or i just want to see what happens when i give them this recipe i don't know and so like there's a little bit of peppering of like so this isn't the first time this panacea has been given to humans like he's done this before and it always ends the same which is to say with basically with everybody devouring each other until probably one or none remains yeah yeah the one thing that is also not mentioned in the synopsis is um in the midst of this whole debate over like whether or not to share the knowledge the formula of the elixir um misa eventually decides like that um 
to share half of the knowledge. Because that's the other aspect of this eating, like the flip side of this eating dynamic, which I think, like this is important to note because I think it is actually really significant. By the same, like, by the same mechanism through which you can like eat someone, um, like absorbing their life and all of their knowledge, you can also share your own. Um, so Miza like chooses to share, whereas like, like Zillard is the first one to like eat. Miza is the first one to like share, um, which is, um, there's an irony in this, uh, because their conflict is arising from like Miza's insistence on like suppressing the knowledge and Zillard's insistence on like sharing it. Um, so there's a, this irony that happens where Zillard is the first to like start eating, um, and Mize is the first to share. Um, but, like, but he shares half of uh, half the knowledge with his brother, who Zillard then eats, um, setting up this like uh, setting up this like or further enhancing this conflict, um, this trajectory of conflict between Miza and Zillard. Yeah, and there's kind of like this monkey's paw quality to the whole hand thing that I feel like I only kind of picked up on during this viewing of it where, um, I mean, it's very strange because like basically you're doing the same thing to eat or share knowledge where like you're placing your hand on somebody's head and you don't know what that person will do until they do it unless they basically express to you beforehand, I'm about to do this. And like, yeah. um, and but obviously like, they could still lie. Yeah, and, and, like, a big thing about, like, um, Zillard uh, being the first to eat somebody is that he does gain all of uh, Gretto's knowledge with it, including basically, like, all of his memories, feelings, and assumedly kind of, like, lust he feels for his partner, Sylvie, and that, like, you know, as Zillard approaches Sylvie, there is a little bit of that kind of, like, pervasoid energy where he's kind of like, oh, you know, a I haven't hungered for the I, I haven't <laughs> hungered for the flesh in years, but now that I've consumed your boyfriend, I see what he sees in you, and now I feel those feelings. I know those emotions and I have those memories and I understand what he saw in you and I am elated with these emotions now that I'm seeing you, not through my eyes, but through his eyes. And so like I think it's really easy to kind of think of this as like, well why would why would a demon, why would the devil or potentially Satan bestow this gift on humans as high for the fact that it just naturally sows distrust but the distrust is there right from the start and that like again there's no distinction between uh taking knowledge or sharing knowledge and and once once you've gotten that knowledge like and you once you've taken the knowledge of somebody else and their experiences as well like that can be a blessing or it can be a curse but the person who took it may never see it as that as it's just it's another way to basically acquire a type of wealth. It's just acquiring a wealth that is knowledge. Like, I don't know. I thought that was, I thought was something kind of interesting and I'm kind of surprised. I never really picked up on that before, but also I did write in my notes that, um, Bacchino, like there are a lot of relationships in this show that are very horny for a show that is largely sexless. So that, is, that was something I kind of picked up on a little bit more this time. And, uh, yeah, that energy to Sillard was like a little kind of, a little kind of out of nowhere, but it also did express a lot about kind of like what is so dangerous about this mechanic of the whole uh, eating knowledge sharing thing, part of the uh, immortality. So one thing I'll I'll like respond to on that because I think this is important. Like now, and also like will be for our ultimate like like thematic analysis of the show 
Um, because I, I think this show is actually like dealing with more like ethical and moral questions. Um, it is like deeply engaging with like philosophical questions around like morality um, and, and specifically related to like these, like the idea of knowledge um, and uh, sharing knowledge, suppressing knowledge. Um, and then like also like interpersonal um like on, on an interpersonal relationship basis as well um like doing harm to other people um so but the one thing i will say is that i think there's a key distinction that we already get which is as you pointed out like zillard absorbs all of these experiences of uh Greto. But his reaction to having those experiences is like manifests in this like, like, like sex, essentially like a sexual assault. Yeah. Um, I mean, not essentially, like it is like a sexual assault. Like he, like he tells her in very specific terms that he's like, wants to rape her. Um, but he just wants to kill her more and like eat her. So he's going to do that instead and when you think about the potentiality of like i mean i'm thinking about this because we've like done ghost in the shell um so you think about like the potentiality of having another person's like experiences um and like the potential for understanding uh like the for lack of a more eloquent term, the positive potential of like being able to like gain another person's experiences, um, and like widen your perspective in that way, um, is limitless, right? But what happens with Zillard is that he like, you know, eats Greto, and then the result of that is this like disgusting, um, like assault and this hunger for more. Um, it, and he, instead of like under, having the compassion and like the love for Misa, the love for Sylvie that like undoubtedly was a part of Greto. Yeah. Uh, instead of having that be like the thing that emerges, it is like this monstrous like formation instead. Um, and I think we're already getting a distinction here of like, like the, gaining someone else's experiences and knowledge involuntarily through this violence of eating the result of that, like even if it in substance is a transference of these experiences and knowledge, like the mechanism of that transference is a distorting one or shapes like the, like the internalization of this in a way that is monstrous because it is this like violent involuntary non-consensual thing. Whereas like in this, um, but in the same way, like this mechanism has this, like has this other possibility of the sharing of knowledge, um, which so far we only see as like this act of love between Misa and, and Greta, uh, and Greta, 
Um, we which we of course also has do like a- see Zillard share memories with Ennis once. Um, but then he has like, like she's referred to as a homunculus that mm-hmm. he like owns, presumably. Okay, um, I can't remember if that, that that's a very information I got out there in the first eight episodes or not, because I was like, I don't want to yeah. say that if he shouldn't know that now, but if he do know that, yeah, like, like his relationship with Ennis is like the same relationship that like a farmer has to like a rake, like she's a tool to him, like the the the, the act of him sharing knowledge with her is like the same thing as you backing up your information to a hard drive, but then that compare that in comparison to like Miza and Greto and like. It's a very, it's a very tender moment between brothers, this thing about like, about like their fears and their hopes for humanity and the fact that like, in this case, you, my brother are the closest person to me. I want to share this with you. And it's such like, like the, the, the mere act of like, of consent and family and warmth in that makes that like a very heartwarming scene compared to like, Sillard literally taking this information and he sees it as a gift, but it's a gift that he was not gifted. Like, he has more yeah. information than he would get than if Greto decided to give that information to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and that's just like my, that an initial framing that I think we should have. I think it is more complicated than that even. Um, and just like with what you introduced Neve, like, um, you know, which I hadn't, uh, which I wasn't accounting for. Like, I think the show is like going to complicate this. Um, but like right off the bat, we have this framing, um, like this thematic and like, um, symbolic framing around all, all of this stuff about eating that I think is important to like, I just wanted to stake out like right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we can now like refer back to it and, and like, mm-hmm. uh, like deepen that discussion as we go. Um, no, it's, okay. It's it's genuinely uh, fascinating. It's something ahead, I did sorry. not think about until I approached this from a very uh, uh, academic and uh, just very clinical, not clinical, but just taken in what I'm seeing and just kind, of, just kind of like putting it through a bit more filters. It's it is fascinating. It's very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's do, let's get the episode eight synopsis out of the way because I think we're like fully ready to just go into discussion. Yeah. I think, it's, I think we have been we're ready to get, to get into discussion. <laughs> um, so, okay, episode eight. Isaac and Miria unintentionally spread happiness around them. In 1931, two FBI agents enlist the help of the Chicago police in finding Isaac and Miria. On the pussyfoot, Nice, Jacuzzi, and their gang see the real trucer and climb onto the roof to investigate. In 1930, Isaac and Miria find Eve crying over a photograph of Dallas. She overhears the pair whispering and goes to talk to them. She tells them that because Dallas is from a rich family, he became a delinquent. There's a little more to it than that, but we'll just... Sure. Um, Isaac and Miria decide that the Genoards will be happier without money and steal some of it. Um, seems like a lot of it. Uh, it's that Someone at some point says that it's all of it. Um, but who knows at this point? Yeah. Um, on the pussyfoot, Jacuzzi and his group return to the dining car and find that Isaac and Miria have disappeared. Nice and Nick search one half of the train, while Jacuzzi and Donnie search the other. Jacuzzi finds Isaac and Miria by the conductor's car, mourning Jacuzzi's supposed death. Uh, we're not going to go into why they think Jacuzzi's dead. Um, and it's another, like, comic misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, 
In a luggage car, Jacuzzi explains that he is wanted by the Russos because he robbed 18 Russo speakeasies in a day after they killed his friends. Eight of his friends, we were told. No, thir- is it eight or 13? Um, I think it's, I think eight, it's eight, eight of his friends? Yeah. Yeah. We're told over and over again that they killed eight of his friends. Um, and indicates that he regrets the deaths that his robberies caused. Isaac and Miria tell him to cheer up and decide to go find the rail tracer and ask it to leave the train. In 1930, Isaac and Miria help Ennis take Dallas and his gang to her car. When Ennis admits that she is too afraid to confront her past sins, Isaac and Miria tell her that she's a good person, surprising Ennis, who appears to be touched by their words. They exchange names in part ways. In 1930, Dallas returns home for money and becomes angry upon learning that it has been stolen. In 1932, Eve awakens to find her guard asleep and escapes. Um, so, okay, we finally, so since we, like, got through the synopses, um, let's, if, if it's okay with, with y'all, let's go back to episode one. Yes, um, please. Because I feel like there's more to, like, discuss there. Um, so... For me, like, and this is some stuff that you've that you've already touched on. Um, I agree that like starting the series with Carol and Gustav is seems to be very important um, as a framing device. It sets up like several just in this like exchange that they have. It sets up several of these like very key themes that are hovering around. Um, and being developed like throughout the series. Um, so the first one being like, uh, knowledge, information, truth, um, this whole like continuum of ideas. Um, of course, like Carol and Gustav are like journalists. Um, so the framing devices them like talking about journalism and talking about like, you know, uh, reporting this story. Um, but also the subtext of all of this is like, uh, that the, the purpose of journalism, at least in theory, um, is the pursuit of truth information for the purpose of sharing, um, to report it to the public. Um, and this idea of like sharing information and knowledge, um, and then the ethical implications of it, um, is a major like theme. Um, like motivating a lot of the plot. Um, so there's that. Um, there's a theme of like narrative, um, narrative itself. Yeah. Related to the like journalism theme. Mm-hmm. Um, but like truth and fiction, how both of those things rely on storytelling. Yeah. Um, how, how we call we... a new story, a story. Exactly. And the, how the way, like, the way that humans make sense of events. Yeah. Um, just fundamentally, whether they are like factual or fictive, um, is heavily reliant on storytelling and narrative. Uh, and then moreover, um, as like Gustav and Carol point out how any account of the truth, even if it is like a nonfiction or, you know, a factual account, um, is artificial uh in in a certain way um thinking of that classic Vertov quotation about um 
you know, all art is propaganda, um, just by virtue of choosing information to include or omit in any account of any, uh, you know, in any account or any narrative, um, there is a like political and ethical implications um, to any choice. Um, For example, so, omitting that you may possibly be a main character. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, which uh, helpful signpost in the in the title maybe um, there. Um, which like I need to see somebody make a shit post of this where it's just that title drop, but then they drop in the always sunny theme as soon as the, the president, the vice president, doesn't. And he omits the fact that he might be the main character. I need someone to do an edit of that with the always sunny theme just playing the second the title comes up on screen. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it does have a very always sunny like energy to it for sure. Um, you're almost expecting like the jingle when the when that title screen comes in. Um. But uh, but yeah, so we have all of this like metafictional discussion and analysis of the story of Bacchino itself uh, from the perspective of these characters um, where they you know debate over how to construct the story specifically like, oh, well, when do we start? Um, when does the story start? What events do we include? Um, and then, you know, pretty uh, explicitly talking about like the artifice of the the construct of the story. Um, and then, uh, related to this, like, uh, the need for the, for a hero, uh, quote unquote, um, GC, I think you mentioned that like Carol specifically points out Firo as like a hero ish character. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it really, it really kind of like, uh, just like, ingratiates the audience to kind of immediately want to pick out Thero as the main character because he's he does very heroish he's very much like the audience eyes until like the under to the other world of the mafia uh we're coming with him basically at the start of his adventure instead of the midway point like we are for a lot of the characters like i i still am kind of like out on whether or not i think that is like a success or failure of the show to try and make Thero make audiences kind of kind of trick audiences into wanting Fury to be the main character when like there may not even really be one in the first place if there is. Well, yeah. And you know, this, this conversation is, is like preempting a lot of this by like drawing attention to the constructed nature of like that. The hero archetype is itself like a construct, right? They're talking about like, Oh, well, doesn't the story need a hero? Well, what about this guy? Let's just make him the hero. Um, so the story, like, it's it's kind of like anticipating that and uh, exposing like the artifice of it, but then like Firo just becomes the like the hero, like the you know Bakuno just starts, and then there's this like you know almost gravitational pull uh, that we get where like Firo is like you know taking on this um, kind of becoming this role. So, like, I kind of was curious to kind of ask, like, based on what y'all have seen so far, if you guys had to pick a main character of the story, do you feel like there is one? Like, who would you, who who would you cast as the main character? Were you also Bailey being grilled by the vice president to pick one? Um, honestly, like Isaac and Miria feel, uh, in a in a way that's funny with like how quickly they glaze over them in the first one. Um, there is, and some of it is just like the pull of 
they are mostly what starts episode two. Um, but there is like a, a, a weird, like some of it too is like, how much are they main character and how much are they like, you could see them being the narrator in a very like, uh, call me Ishmael way of like the main character of Moby Dick is not Ishmael. (laughs) Um, that is the narrator and like the, the focal character who, you know, tells us what is happening, but that's not the, the actual main character of it. Um, and so some of it, I could also see that with like, they seem to be the ones who like are all over the place. Um, but then also are like obviously very unreliable narrators in that mm-hmm. um, Isaac can never get anything straight. So, <laughs> I mean, his retelling of the story of the the was it the shoot what's it called this the the story of the three kingdoms Roman- like he, the romance he, of the three kingdoms yeah the, yeah the three kingdoms he literally just works in Billy the Kid at some point and just sticks to that <laughs> as being the story of the three kingdoms <laughs> yeah yeah there's um. I think in a way, like, I think the show itself is, like, so critically playing with the idea of, like, the main character that, like, the the idea of the main character itself becomes, like, a site of, like, you know, like, interpretation and, like, play, like, for, for the show, where it's, like... Mm-hmm. In this way, like, undermining, there's this tension where it's, like, simultaneously undermining this, like, form of narrative, um, but then also, like, presenting it um, as a thing that, like, has force. Um, And so I think there's this, like, almost there's a feeling that I get of almost like competition in the narrative where you have like, you know, of course you have Firo who like has all these things around him. He's positioned as the main character. He does all of this, like, Oh, like I saved the guy from being beaten just because I felt like, you know, cause I save people and like, Oh, it's a fire. Like, let me go check it out. Like I'm going to go save, you know, I'm going to go run towards the danger. Cause I'm a hero. Yeah. Um, and like, oh, let me protect my friend. Like, I'm this really strong guy who protects his friends. Um, and he has all of these, like, you know, classic hallmarks of like your anime hero or just like any, you know, any like your standard hero archetype. Um, but then you have like Jacuzzi who also, even though he is like shaggy fused with a shonen protagonist, like still has these like shonen protagonist traits to him. Yeah. Um and is shown to be like also doing these like hero type things. Um and so they're like vying for this kind of like within the matrix of the show are like vying for this position. Mm-hmm. Um and then you have Isaac and Miria who like the show feels like, I think we all agree, like, the show feels and is, like, centered on them in these weird ways. I mean, yeah, it's like, like, I mean, their actions kind of, like, they have more uh, inciting actions than probably any other character in the story. Like, a lot of things they do 
kick off like conflicts between different characters or factions. Yeah. But then also by virtue of them feeling almost like they are coming out of like a, a straight comedy show, um, they kind of operate almost in this like sitcom logic where at least at this point, I am like not expecting growth from them in the way that like certain forms of narrative, the protagonist is, is the one who is like most meant to be tested and grow and like change. Um, they kind of seem like static in this like weird goofiness that they are. Mm -hmm. Um, that also is a, a sort of a contradiction, but again, they could, they could be the protagonist of like, Cromarty High School style thing or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, well, and and bootlegger crow eye. <laughs> and they defiantly the other, have no arc. <laughs> yeah, and here's the other thing too that makes this even more complicated, like more like delightfully complicated. When we get to episode seven, um, the like initial narrative that we're getting becomes nested <laughs> within this like much larger narrative you know, from 1711 onwards, like this cult, like this alchemy cult narrative. Yeah. In which Misa is the hero. Yeah. Like Misa is the protagonist, like in 1711. Um, and then, but in like 1930, he's a completely like, completely relegated to a side character. Yeah. As like Firo's like sidekick mentor guy. He's now Baruto's uh, dad. Whatever his dad is. <laughs> <laughs> So like yeah. hear, hear hear me out on this. Every time I've watched this show, I always feel like Miza kinda has like big Hank Hill energy. Because like the thing <laughs> the thing about Hank the thing about Hank Hill is that he's smarter than most sitcom dads, and he's usually the smartest person on the show. He's capable of being correct and wrong, but he he doesn't always know what's best, but he always knows what's right and correct. It has a as a set moral compass and i get that same energy from miza where miza is not like the most exciting main character when you look at it it's like he is arguably the smartest character on the show he acts as like a moral compass for like everyone he's around whether it's like his brother or elmer or, or Firo is kind of like a surrogate brother to him in the 1930s like i don't know he he just kind of he's he's very he's very much like a he's a he's a stable rock in the in the the noisy ocean that is Bacano as a whole, and there's something about that that is comforting. And like, I don't know if he'd be my vote for main character, but he maybe seems more main character ish than than Firo does because he is a constant, just kind of like solid ground for characters to to land on when they need that ground to land on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we have, it, by the way, been joined by Lem, everyone's favorite podcasting cat. <laughs> I didn't hear the furious scratching at the at the closet door, so I assumed yeah. you just let Lemon right away. Man, is living with um, Lemon Ollie like living with your own personal tiny furry Isaac and Miria at all times? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, Lem's like, yeah, Marathi is relative to the historical <laughs> period he lived in. Yeah, so just like, I think you're a good person, so that's okay. Um, um, as long as you keep giving me treats, I'll turn a blind eye to your murders. One of, one of the they things could, they steal the door right off of your home. <laughs> um, one of the things too, in in all of the stuff that we're talking about as well, um, and I think it's like another interesting tension that comes up in the first episode, um, and also like continues to pre present itself as the show goes on, uh, is that it is like okay, we are we are searching for the truth of what happened, but all of this is a constructed fiction, and mm. like figuring out the truth 
then becomes to some degree a MacGuffin where like the person writing this knows everything, right? Like they're, they could just tell you everything. It's not like they're actually digging through like various records while they're telling you the story, trying to piece it together like a true crime podcast or something like this is, is a constructed narrative that is being presented. And it is like the structure of a, a mystery where the truth is just something that like is intentionally kept from you because it makes for good fiction. Um, in a way where like, Honestly, if the the whole point of this is to get to the truth, like maybe we should have started with talking about what happens on the ship in 1711 and explain what the hell immortals are instead of going through like six episodes of kind of vaguely introducing information about it before like actually explaining everything to you. Um, but that necess- that probably wouldn't be as fun of a show. Um, and so that also becomes like a thing that's at, at tension here where they are talking about this like truth in fiction is... Um, but then also, like, is there, when we talk about the themes around, like, the ethics of sharing knowledge and everything, like, fiction also contains truth in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Fiction is also, like, a way of talking about true things or trying to get at something true and talk about that. Um, and so all of this is, like, in this weird... Um, what, what does Bacchino mean in Italian again? It's basically just a ruckus. <laughs> yeah, in all of this ruckus. This ruckus. Yeah, and and to add to that point, you, to like expand it even further, one of the other things that I was thinking about in relation to like um <clears throat> the like discussion of the hero and like um like the um. Carol and Gustav conversation around the construction of the story um, is like the presence of the audience. Um, The way that one of the things that I think is inscribed in this show and that the show like deals with um, is the way that the audience also like constructs the story. So this anticipation of like, Specific, I mean, stated in the dialogue of Carol and Gustav, like, oh, well, we need a hero. Uh, well, why do we need a hero? Well, because we have an audience. And we're trying to make this, like, narrative. Yes, we're trying to share this knowledge. But as we've, as we, you know, we've already gone through the process of determining that sharing this knowledge means creating a narrative to make it intelligible. Um, and then to, like, make this narrative intelligible, you know, we need to have this, these constructs like a hero um, for the audience so the audience can understand it. So even as like the arbitrary nature of this hero, like the his hero construct is highlighted, um, the story itself, like as it takes shape um, is like grappling with this. And, you know, we have these characters like doing heroic things and seeming to become the hero, but like kind of not, um, and all of this is like, for me, um, like relating to, um, like either an anticipation, like the expectation of the audience, the presence of the audience in like the writing of the story and the construction of the story and the way that like, A, the story doesn't exist without the audience, um, or it's not complete, um, and B, like, uh, the audience is like 
in a certain way inscribed in even even the process of writing um and this is where like it comes back to to bring it back to um your comment neve like fiction constructing fiction in this way like i think a lot of um i'll just use literature as an example but i think any like work of art can do this um or any like narrative work of art uh to be more specific you're presenting like you have certain material um that you're choosing to present in a certain way um and you could just if you have a story that's comprised of events a b c and d um you can just present them like oh but here's event a b c and d um but like the choices to like present them out of order or in a certain way uh, and to obscure th- certain things um, is creates a like demand on the audience for the audience to like work through and to solve this puzzle. Um, and I think the truth of like narrative, um, what you're getting at, like a lot, the truth of narrative is, something that is not static, but like a process of interpretation. Um, and so constructing a narrative in this way is like essential. Um, and having the audience like have to work through it, um, is the thing itself that like generates whatever truth there is. Um, because the truth itself is like an interpretive action. Um, so this whole like mystery thing, um, this mystery dynamic is like, I think related to this problem <laughs> um, yeah. that is a big part of Bacchino. Well, and it is also like at multiple levels, like I, I think one of the, the biggest key themes throughout this, you know, the episodes that I've watched at least is about like knowledge and information and the sharing of that situating the, the daily days as like, you know, information brokers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, the the whole thing about, like, eating people means that you gain their knowledge or you can, like, give your knowledge. Uh, this, is, this is part of the powers of being immortal. It is not just, like, um, having this eternal life. Um, and then also the, the way that the story is specifically constructed being one that is about, like, the doling out of information to you as an audience um, mm-hmm. in a way that, it is partially informed just by like doing a good mystery as well as like also a certain amount of um, like it, it is exaggerated beyond what would just exist in like a normal whodunit by this nonlinear nature as well. And by like, um, honestly, I think especially for someone watching it the first time, like going to great lengths to actually obfuscate or, um, confuse or misdirect, um, as like a, a a specific way of telling the story and to like really meter out information and to, um, force you as like a, an audience member to have to like sift through information and, uh, continually like, reassess your understanding Mm -hmm. yeah and and interpret your understanding of what's happening you see it's i think it's interesting i think it's interesting you use the phrase um misdirect on that because like i think as far as like mysteries go i don't think bacchino ever really kind of like lies to the audience or gives them the wrong information like 
I think one of the scenarios that the vice president sets up in this first episode is um, when uh, he instructs Carol to look at the rainbow and she's like, oh, it's pretty. And he's like, oh, that's cute. But it's wrong because, like, a rainbow <laughs> might be nice to some people. It could be awful to others. And I think there's definitely, like, I think there's definitely an element of that to, like, some of the mysteries they set up. Because, like, like I said, I think there's, like, what? There's, like, a couple of major mysteries that I think drive the story forward. I think the biggest one, which, again, I think it's funny that this is kind of the biggest main mystery that drives forward, at least, like, the show version of Bakken as we see it, is what happened to Dallas Genoard and where is he now? And like we like the show paints us a picture of who Dallas Genoard is. And it paints two pictures for us. It paints the picture that Eve paints for us, which is Dallas is her brother. And she knows Dallas as like her brother who's always there for her. And he may be away, but when she comes back, he is there for her. And then there's the Dallas who we actually see through his actual actions. And, I don't think the show is necessarily misdirecting the audience on who is Dallas and why does he matter and why is he of such great importance? Because like ultimately the lesson about Dallas is like, at least what we've gathered from like these first eight episodes is that he is probably the most objective piece of shit in this entire cast, like <laughs> an entire show of criminals, an entire show where there is one character who literally revels in just beating a guy's face in while telling him that like, <laughs> you probably don't know about these boxers I'm listing off, which is why you're not even worth like their time of day. And Dallas is still somehow worse than the man who murders for fun because like he's genuinely vindictive. He's, he's godless. He's a heathen. He's, He's willing to switch sides on the flip of a hat, and he, he he when he sees his sister, he's he literally makes it clear. He puts his cards on the table and say, "I was only here for a handout." Also, stop praying. There's no such thing as God. What are you doing? Yeah. You're an idiot, my sister of mine. And like, I don't know. A lot, a lot of like what drives that mystery forward is, I guess, like asking you, the viewer, to kind of understand that like there are a lot of perspectives on why the mystery of what happened to Dallas is important but ultimately it's up to you to decide whether or not that is what the story of the story is and i think like by by situating the mystery of dallas genoard as the main one it gives you a really identifiable standpoint of like the truth of the truth of the truth of this situation is not worth the trouble of like figuring it out because like again dallas is like the world's biggest piece of shit like there's nothing likable about this guy like there is nothing to like about him. He's genuinely reprehensible. But meanwhile, like what is what what are the more fascinating things about the story are things about like who is Miza and why is he like who is Miza and now you know that he's been graced with the knowledge of like having to carry the 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 the, the secret to the Grand Elixir. It's like what does he do with that information? How does he live his life? Has he has he been twisted by his information as much as someone like Zillard has been by similar information and stuff like that? Like. I don't know, there's just mysteries that, there's mysteries that pop up, and I don't know, the more we kind of talk about it, the more I'm just kind of reminded of just kind of like, maybe like, one of the greatest movie quotes of all time, possibly the greatest quote in any Western, from um, the end of uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, um, this is the West, sir, when, what is it, when the, when the legend becomes truth, you print the legend, and like, I think there's a lot of that to this story, but the show, Bacchano itself still asks you how much do you value the legend over the truth? And is like, is that truth or even the legend even worth 
even worth pursuing based on like whose perspective it's from who's telling that story like like the story the story takes on the story of what happens on the flying pussyfoot takes a different it's a different perspective from us the viewers who have everything from isaac and miria who are here and they're seeing it as like the story of how jacuzzi's plot goes from like you know like a crybaby criminal a, a crybaby uh, low-level criminal to possibly stepping off his train and being like the new chieftain of an entire like new mafia he might be more he might like jacuzzi's plot is the kind of person that isaac and miria want to be and like they're there to kind of help usher him along that way like at the end of their episode episode eight jacuzzi literally says that he has to stand up and be better than isaac and miria if they can be strong he can be too and like yeah i I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of kind of like my these are like the ideas that are floating around in like my 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 web of like thoughts here. Is this is this kind of coming together? Do you get what I'm kind of saying here about this? Yeah. Well, and yeah. to to return to to like when I said misdirect to I was I was particularly thinking of it in the the way of like magic tricks where um I think there are often moments where the the series is showing you something but it it is doing something else that is like more attention grabbing at the same time. Mm. Um, like in a way where it, I was very far into these episodes when I started to realize that like, Oh, like beyond just the, the immediate like aftermath of the fire and stuff, like the, the bottle of elixir is like moving around throughout these scenes. But like, often that is they are showing you that but they are like misdirecting you and making you look at something else at the same time um mm-hmm. and i think that is a, a a thing that's being employed in a certain way too where i think some of it is intentional um for this purpose of um i think more than a lot of other shows that we have like watched and things i th- i think bacano wants people to rewatch it um like the way that it is constructed wants you to return to it and be like, I now have this information. Let me like revisit this episode um, and see it anew because now I'm looking at something else before you had kind of like tricked me into paying attention to this other plot. Um, but now I'm aware that something else is happening in the scene and I'm, I'm looking there as well. And for me, for like the first time through, there are often these moments where I feel like the magic trick has happened and I'm not sure like where the hand of the magician happened mm-hmm. um, in a way that I'm sure for you watching through this many times, you have less of that sense now. Uh, whereas for me, there are just moments where I'm like, Oh, you, you pulled one over on me show. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you got me to look the wrong yeah. way for a moment and, and like tricked me into something. And there's also one of the key like parts of this, like play of perspective that is so much you know, that is what we're talking about is if you presuppose that, uh, you know, you have a certain event occur and there's an objective truth of that. It also might be the case that like one of the people privy to that event, like perceived it in such a way that like that does not give like the true impression of of what that event was right Mm -hmm. so like yeah you know you might have a character who like uh because of you know where they were what they were doing like what they saw or what they were able to see like uh rationally like interpreted that like 
all of that, all of those phenomena in like such a way. Um, so they like witnessed the event, but because of the parts of it that they witnessed or the perspective that they had, like they're drawing a diff- completely different conclusion about what that event was. Um, and I think, you know, obviously that's a big part of, of the show and the show is putting the viewer in that position as well, where it's like, okay, well, we'll show you like this event, like the brief snippet of Isaac, like getting shot or whatever and his ear healing um, very early in the show. And it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, with no other information, we just see this snippet and we like are unable to, you can't draw any conclusions from that other than, oh, well, maybe I guess Isaac's immortal. Um, but then the actual like, you know, truth of that information might be something else entirely. Um, or, or the, you know, the reality of that event, when you expand it out, um, from other perspectives, um, you're gaining more information, uh, and then you'll come, you know, your interpretation of that, uh, you know, will differ. It's, it's the subjectivity that the show is playing with, um, of like around truth and like memory, um, and like, uh, the truth of like occurrences and events. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the places where um, it maybe draws the most attention to this sometimes is with stuff around the rail tracer. Where, for example, there's the the woman up. we see jump out the window and is climbing alongside of the train, and then later they see like a figure climbing alongside the train. But we, as the audience, are like, that could be the rail tracer because we know that the rail tracer is out there, but that could also be this woman we are like aware of it in a way that the characters in that moment are not. Um, and you know, this also gets played out of like something is happening on the ship that, um, sometimes I wonder if it is the demon and if the demon is connected to the rail tracer other times, like one of them seems to confirm that a figure that seems to be the rail tracer attacking on the ship is, um, Zillard eating someone. Uh, as they're like going up the stairs mm-hmm. onto the deck the of the boat. Because the movements are very similar. Yes. Um, and also like specifically eats with his hand, which um, who knows? Maybe the real tracer is a different immortal. Like it never gets directly confirmed that that one is um, Zillard, but also is, is heavily implied. Um, but again, there's like this, the, the rail tracer is a thing where we, as the audience, I think are, are most often getting the most information from different points of view uh, in a way that is like very specifically calling, calling attention to the different ways that people are reading what's happening. And then like our growing understanding of like, there are various things that this could be connected to. Um, yeah. But, I, it reminds me a lot of, um, Oh, not to cut you off, JC. I don't know if you wanted to. Oh no, um, I'm just I'm just soaking it in. I'm also kind of in a position too, where I'm just kind of like knowing that Neve hasn't hasn't seen the second half of the show, uh, and also <laughs> presumably the audience as well. I there are some things that's like I'm gonna just kind of sit here and observe and just kind of like yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying seeing this through new eyes. I'm just really really soaking that in. Um, you may as well just assume that I haven't seen the show either. Because well, I like don't remember what happened. That, I, that's how I'm also operating. I was scrolling to find it and then saw that you specifically clicked into this part that I I was looking for as well. Where because um, this is a thing that I thought of as well, which is that I think Jacuzzi is the one who's like says like 
oh, I can tell that the rail tracer is here, um, which does seem to like have some sort of connection to Ronnie commenting that Zillard is close by um, at the end of epi- like episode seven. Like that was the one where I was watching that and like furiously taking notes about like, what is the rail tracer <laughs> while I'm watching this also, episode that has nothing to do with the train. <laughs> another thing that, um, you know, that occurs to me is like, the connection that you mentioned, Neve, between like the demon and the rail tracer. Um, so, like, the way the show plays with like bias and perspective and subjectivity, um, and the way that that like shapes our interpretations of events, um, and the rail tracer, like as you as you were talking about becoming like um, almost like you know, uh, like a talisman or like a you know, in a, like this embodied version of, of this theme, um, the real tracer, like the story of the real tracer that Isaac and Miria tell is like that the real tracer is created when the story is told. Right. So it's this like Freddy Krueger, you know, <laughs> dynamic. Um, yeah. But like the real tracer only emerges once like, jacuzzi starts being like oh the real tracer exists right so and as the viewer like we're actually in basically the same position um where we're like introduced to the idea of the real tracer jacuzzi freaks out and is like oh the real tracer's here and then he goes and like the real tracer starts to appear but i think the show is playing with like okay well you know jacuzzi is seeing the real tracer like what he is we don't know what he's seeing exactly but like it's becoming the real tracer um, because like, you know, that's his fixation um, and that's yeah. like biasing his perspective. Um, and then like the mythical story of the real tracer itself is like validating that. Um, and then the show in this weird way, like is also playing with this by like having the real tracer appear um, and seemingly being this mythical like or this demonic being um you know once we the audience are introduced to the possible like to the concept um so again it's like um the like perspectives of the characters and their like the way they're interpreting the world around them um is like becoming inscribed in the actual like show um and through their points of view yeah um which is echoed in the way that um, we talked about this conversation that the demon has with uh, Miza, where he says, "Well, if you're, whenever you're thinking of me, I'm I'm there." Mm. See, um, I think I think you guys might find that if you ever sit down and read the um, the light novels, I think you might find those interesting because those are told a little bit more linearly than the show is. And they also tend to stick with the character for much longer than the show does. So you definitely get way more of like an insight to how the character you're sticking with sees the events more so than kind of what we see in the show, which is like the events unfolding, but characters passing through it as a lens on the events as they unfold and not necessarily real time, but just the, the lens, the lens that we're shown the events through is just constantly shifting. So it goes from like somebody like, jacuzzi who sees it as like 
a children's story come horrifyingly true to Lad, who's here for his own purposes, and this stuff is just happening around him that makes it more interesting, to Isaac and Miria, who are still under the pretenses that they're here for a wedding, and then something very bad is happening also on the train, unrelated to the wedding entirely. <laughs> yeah, we may have to um, to bring those in in the question bucket. Um, we'll see if... Uh... If we can get a, a hold of them, I, I might check them out for the question bucket because um, I'm even more excited about the whole like universe as we're talking about it than than I was um, before we started. I mean, there, um, are, there are there are there are details that I have not gotten to yet that I know about that like I won't really share to the second half where there's more information that we have for certain at that point. But like, man, oh man, they have some fun with those characters. It sounds like. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I know it's, I know it's hard. Neva's been in this position before where she's like known what's going to happen and I didn't. And it's like, yeah, oh, it's hard to not say. <laughs> it's, uh, I do find it slightly easier when it's one of these where there's only two discussion episodes. Cause I'm like, okay, like we can just sit on this. We're going to get to it next time. It'll be fine. Uh, but yeah, the, the wildest are where it's like, you're talking about something in the first discussion episode, and I know that we're going to have like four of these, and then something's going to come up in the last one, and I'm just like, ah! Oh. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I want to talk about this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I, I wanted to like to touch on, um, just because I think, like for me at least, is, um, is coming up as a big uh, a big thing. Um, the fact that it's set in the United States, um, there is like this major theme of the United States itself and like the people living within it and like creating it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, I think the show is fascinated with the multiculturalism of the United States. Um, you know, first of all, we have all these characters from um, either various places or, like, having these names, which are these markers of, like, uh, you know, ethnic identity. Um, and, you know, in one sense, that is just, like, you know, okay, it's New York City in 1930. Um, there's, like, a historical context that is, um, you know, being... Uh, that this that is just being accurately represented, um, but also because this is part of the show, um, you know, this is part of the fabric of the show um, in a way that's important. Um, I think, like the at least right now, like the way I'm thinking about it is, um, immigration is like this uh, intersection point for the theme of uh, like this fixation on American multiculturalism and then like this related idea of the relationship between past and future, um, which like the um, Avena Avis um, as like this, um, you know, boat of settlers coming to like uh, basically immediately like pre-revolutionary uh, U.S., um, 
you know, is like emblematic of this. And then of course, all of these people become key characters for, for the, for the show. Um, but there's this relationship between like past and future of, um, you know, the past of these characters, like not only their ethnic origin, but like, um, they're also their histories. Um, and then like the, the possibility of the future, um, in this like new country. Um, so their immortality is like, you know, this perpetual futurity, um, that is like juxtaposed with their, um, their like specific histories and these or and uh, these origins that they have. Yeah, um, yeah, not just like building out the future of the country, but like something that is um, surprisingly well observed for for an anime. I would say an anime slash a light novel is kind of like how there's this element of like an underworld and underbelly of America being kind of built by like not necessarily like secret forces, but kind of more so like hidden. I mean, like I think there is like a strong sense of like, you know, like the three, the three mafias that basically run like the, that basically run the show on this show are, or basically Italian families. They come from Italian roots. You have the Avena Vs where like, as I pointed out, mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out like, well, where's this boat from? And I figured out like, well, I think you basically have a hodgepodge of a bunch of people from all across Europe as a smattering. Um, you have the daily days where it's like you're, you're shown like, you're shown like, uh, like black people working alongside like white people and Asian people mm-hmm. as well. Like, like probably specifically Chinese people. I would have to guess kind of given like the time and the era. You have like jacuzzi splat where it's like they've got like, um, the big guy, Donnie, and he's kind of like, he's this very, uh, Andre the Giant kind of figure where he is this, he's this, He's this like larger brown skin kind of like giant of a man. It's like very clear that it's like the, he's he is the he is the kind of person that is immediately like and like not necessarily an outcast in society, but just someone that doesn't fit in quite literally and figuratively. Like there is absolutely this element of like this very well observed element of like people coming from outside America to kind of help give America these kind of like secret connections and voices that a lot of quote unquote, as well as say Native Americans, but that's not the right word. A lot of people, basically, the, the white inhabitants of America may not necessarily always be aware of that. Like, hey, these strings are kind of being run by forces that you might not, not necessarily that you can't fathom to understand, but you just haven't taken the time to see if that they are see that they are there. Like, I, I, I think that element of like using immigration to kind of like play within that stage is is very exciting. Like, like I said, like at the end of that uh, episode seven, where you're shown like the lives of the people who first get this elixir, you have all these people from, from Europe. And now they're basically acting like the, they're basically acting behind the scenes as invisible forces living out their unknown immortal lives. But you know, people are going to clubs and they don't realize that Sylvia there, or like you have like that other dude, like one of the two men in the show that just look like Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. He's just a he's just an <laughs> alchemist somewhere or whatnot. Like, or we don't know where Elmer is yet. We we know that these people are out here living these lives, and that extends even to Miza, who has ingratiated himself into one of the the major camaraderas of the of the New York mafiosa scene. Like it's yeah. it, like that's 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 surprisingly true to life. To the development of America as a country throughout the 20th century in particular. Yeah. There's also uh, an intentional, like um, this plays a lot with 
like American cinema and American cinema that is uh, like kind of genre cinema that is often engaged with like the construction of America as a nation, which, you know, the obvious is like gangster. They're, they're pulling Mm -hmm. a lot from gangster cinema stuff, um, which definitely has like a uh, root in in talking about like aspects of um, immigration and like this idea of the American dream and um, those who are, who are unable to like achieve it through conventional means. Um, like who gets driven to crime and for what reasons is like a, a preoccupation for especially American gangster movies. Um, also there's a certain polling from like Western movies. I think Isaac and Miria, um, like Isaac is, mm-hmm. um, is wearing a cowboy hat through a lot of these episodes. Um, and also like we first get introduced to them, um, going to California, uh, the gold rush being a thing that like, uh, is a little outside of like the, the classic cowboy period, but there's a certain, um, like especially spaghetti Westerns as well, kind of pull on some of this like gold rush stuff as well. Uh, that I think is also, it is about the frontier still It is about that like idea yeah. of the Western or the frontier. Um, and, like living outside of like law, like yeah. defined like law in an undeveloped, like re- quote unquote, like undeveloped, like, region yeah um and of course they are uh humorously uh, you know good introduction to their characters being like yes we came here to california to get gold shouldn't we be like doing this from the river oh just like getting uh like gold sand out of the river no like why would we do that we're here mining we're gonna find gold in the mines (laughs) um and they never find any gold um but like that's being pulled in and then there's also with them, like, there's a photo that we see of them, like, dressed as Charlie Chaplin. That's obviously, uh, both of them are dressed that way, homaging, <laughs> um, you know, silent film and, and that style stuff. Uh, also, them doing like baseball characters, we get like boxers come in as well. So, we get like more of this like American culture stuff as well that I, I think are all kind of tied into, um, like a history in American cinema of the construction of nation um, and like lots of the things that go on with that. Uh, Interestingly, Isaac and Mary are the ones who like seem to point at the most, (laughs) Um, but other elements of the plot, like the the train too is a, is a specifically a a concept in a lot of like uh, American fiction, um, including films of like, the when you build the track you are like bringing civilization to that part mm-hmm. of like the frontier and of course there's all the stuff about how like people were living there and this is you know it was not an empty like yeah frontier um but it, it is still like also engaged in those things um Perhaps one of the mo- the most ham fisted. Who knows if they'll do more? But there is the part where they are wearing a uh, very like stereotypical native dress. Or I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> again, again, surprisingly pointed for an anime. I still do not know if it's intentional or not. That like when they're at the hat shop and they're trying on a hats, and then like Miria puts on the headdress, and there's like a like the audience has like a Simpson style kind of collar tug of like doy, and as the second she goes in for the war call, like you get like a third of a second through and it immediately cuts and i'm like 
I wonder if they knew what they were doing there. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a certain thing with Isaac and Miria where at once they are like my favorite characters. Uh, they are often very charming. Also, being the most comedy characters, they sometimes just run into like, eh, sometimes comedy does like weird stuff <laughs> um, yeah. in ways that are not like as deep, at least for me, as like deeply offensive as like when things are really trying to tackle something and like, um, but in like the worst possible ways where they're just like, not even just messing up, but like really doing things terribly wrong. Um, oh, yeah. but whereas like, this is just like, oh, okay. Uh, there, there, there's a part in the dub where they do like a, uh, you know, native voice as well, where I'm just like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, these as, characters as are was, like as was the style at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, these characters specifically being like defined by their like their fantasy, yeah, and like situated. I think like you, as you point out, like very very well, like situated within like this whole American context. Yeah. Like, flying through these various like forms of like very uniquely american like fantasy yeah and well and they very intentionally wear costumes um and like it's brought up when i i thought it was very funny in the the last episode that we watched episode eight where um you know the fbi is getting involved trying to find isaac and miria uh (laughs) one it's commented that now they finally care because they stole a bunch of money from a rich family, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is like, mm, yeah. Uh, surprisingly like aware of that dynamic here. Um, but there's also a certain, um, oh, I'm trying to think of like exactly where I was going with this. Um, but like, yeah, the, there like it is commented on in that of like people just thought they were performers because they always wear like ridiculous costumes when they they would always stop to pose for a camera. If someone tried to take a picture of them. Yeah. They always like pose for the camera and everything. Um, so all of the photos are them like mugging at the camera, uh, and just like, you know, fingers out, like doing the peace sign and stuff. Um, (laughs) but yeah, so there's like, Um, there's like a, uh, a performative nature in this like idea of um of like costumes or like putting on different roles that are are specifically brought up with them in this like very jokey context i mean like something that i was surprised kind of aged really well for this contrast against something that didn't uh i was kind of a little kind of like reclaimed watching episode seven on on the ship where elmer it's constantly telling people that no matter hard, how, how hard things get, that they should smile, um, especially for Sylvie, who whose partner had just been consumed in a way that she had not thought fathomable. Um, somebody who she trusted just tried to consume her in an almost sexual way and had his hand explode. And now the entire ship is like freaking out with people running to try to figure out who's going to eat who first. And Elmer just shows up going like, oh, you should try and smile sometime. You got a pretty smile. It'll make things all better. And I'm just like... <laughs> I hate this. I really don't like this. But then contrasted with immediately following that up with the episode where Isaac and Miria unintentionally spread happiness. Like, I think you kind of get what it is that people like and see in Isaac and Miria. Because, like, in their their interaction with Eve, like, they genuinely make her laugh. And you kind of get the sense that, like, that, like, their interactions they have with Ennis, where they tell Ennis, like, 
you know, like, we'll help you because you helped us. We don't care what you've done before. You helped us right now, and so that's what makes you a good person right now. And Or the interaction they have with um, Jacuzzi and his gang, where they go on, like, the most nonsensical monologue they've gone on for the entire series up to this point. Like, they elicit genuine smiles, they elicit genuine laughs, and they elicit genuine warmth from people in a way that feels way more sincere than Elmer telling people, like, ah, just smile. It's like... They, 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 they kind of represent, like, I guess, like, by being, by being the clowns of this story, they are still a force to be reckoned with in that they have a genuine impact on people. And whether they're, whether they're stealing an entire, stealing the money of, like, two or three mafias at once, or whether they're, like, convincing somebody to be better than he can be, like, that is the direct influence they have because their, their actions, though strange, come from a place of, like, genuine passion and that's just what that's what the other characters in the story pick up on when they interact with them even if they are like genuinely oblivious to stuff or genuinely idiotic or like genuinely unreliable as characters in this story where isaac is you don't get more unreliable like exposition than isaac who literally will change the story two or three times there's a moment i love in his telling of the story of the of the um the, the story of the three kingdoms in which he's explaining that because like the, the emperor he's describing in the story and Billy, Billy, the kid killed millions, maybe billions of people. They're actually a good person, much like Jacuzzi, who's probably also killed billions of people. And then he just kind of stops because it's finally catching up to him what he's saying. And he has no idea where he's going, but he's just that passionate that like whatever comes out is what comes out. And no matter what, that charm still works. That charm still works on them. And it's still, pushes the story along even if like the words they say don't matter just the energy they bring to the scene does like they're they're a chaotic force in the story but they are purely a chaotic force of good well yeah and that that thing you brought up at the end too is uh kind of you wrote their their moral philosophy if the people around them say they're good they become good people um which once like especially the way that it is framed within them talking about the romance of the three kingdoms and then also talking to jacuzzi is um like one they are kind of clowns and like jokey people and you can take what they say like slightly tongue-in-cheek as on the part of the show there's obviously like a uh um extreme optimism to them as characters that uh is maybe somewhat misplaced but also there's like this truth in what they're saying of like one in the like telling of the these fables like if the framing around the story of the three kingdoms is that these are like good people and these are heroes to some degree that like is the truth of it even if it is like talking about them killing billions of people um like that the construction of the narrative is like also just like constructing who these people become in like cultural understanding and and all of that also this like certain thing that as someone who like raises a child is an important thing as well to keep in mind of like, if you, if you are around people like someone and saying like, you are good at these things or, or you are like, you are a good person, you are capable, you can do it, blah, blah, blah. Like these are actual things that will like psychologically influence someone towards that. Like Mm -hmm. the, the way that you, you conceive of someone, the way that society conceives of someone like does actually have a, a shaping effect. Um, both in terms of like delimiting, uh, delimiting like within social spaces, what roles they can even fulfill, but also in this like, if this is what you are told you are or can be, like there's a there's a certain amount to which, um, if you can keep being told it, you will believe it and you will start to like, uh, 
try to live up to that um, or, or live yourself, like live your life by that. Um, Which is exactly what happens with Ennis. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To just tie that up, like, to, or to just like add one point there to, and let you keep going. Like that is all born out in like their relationship. Yeah, I with Ennis. Um, I love Ennis in part because uh, it's it's well documented. I love the uh, robot girl who learns how to be a human as just like a trope. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is her arc. That is, yeah, that is what I mean. It's homunculus, but what is a homunculus if not a robot? What is a robot if not the golem? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. she's she's a golem made of like flesh, basically. Yeah, but with more free will than a golem, of course. Yeah. Um, there is a, like, cat wrestling match happening on the floor of my recording <laughs> studio right now. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if the mic picked up the, the, uh, meow, but they're really wrestling. No, you, you should move the mic closer to the, uh, that sounds like a good way to, to, to have the cats attack my mic. Mm. Which, like. Can I just say, too, that, like, especially this time watching it, I really don't like watching um, real-world violence befall or surround Isaac and Miria. Something about that is genuinely upsetting in the same way that I imagine it would be for, like, you know, like, having to see that around, like, somebody you care about or a child or something. Like, I don't like seeing, like, Isaac getting realistically, like, kicked around by Dallas or, like, the, the, the cold... The cold clash of realism versus fantasy of them st- coming upon a room where the rail tracer was, where like Isaac being being playing the role of the man in a situation is confronting this violence, and Miria literally can't look at it. She has her back to Isaac and is covering her eyes because it's like this is something that she can't conceive, and it's something that like Isaac Isaac can be serious when he needs to be serious, but even he has a hard time kind of placing their fun spin on it, like. I don't. I don't like seeing them around real world violence. It does make me very sad. I'm just like, I, I want these P characters to be happy. I like it when they're happy. But there's a like performative element to those like scenes, which I think are which I think are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, where I mean, it's exactly as you put it. Like, it is the clash of worldviews. Um, but even in those moments, like. Isaac and Miria don't comprehend or don't appear to comprehend like the like what they're experiencing in the way that like the other char- the other characters in the viewer does. Um like there is that like theatrical performative like delusional uh response even to the violence. Like I think about when the train car is held hostage and a bunch of people like they watch Vlad literally beat this guy's face in and crush his skull. And then they just get up off the floor and they're like, wow, yeah, like that. And then they're just back to being Isaac and Miria. Like they're com- like completely unfazed. This might sound, um, this might sound weird, but like I don't, I kind of get the feeling that I don't think Miria comprehends that. I think Isaac kind of can, but actively chooses not to, or is just too stupid to like, compartmentalize that as clashing against the worldview that the g- clashing against the world that he wants to live in compared to the world he actually does yeah i think i'll be interested to like because i really don't remember how this like their arc resolves within the show um but so far my reading of them is like 
and this ties into the much larger, larger, longer discussion we already had about like the way that perspective perspective becomes um, the fat like part of the fabric of the show. But Isaac and Miria's like worldview is this, you know, and this is not like uh, a value judgment, but it is like so uh, extremely like extremely defined by this like delusion and fantasy um and but it's so strong that it has force that like almost seems to warp the fabric of the world um around them like in in these various ways um or it, it seems to have this like um inertial like force that just like withstands like creates a bubble around them and withstands like the reality um, of these events. Um, and I think part of the drama of the show, and, and it's all like related to, um, this like larger theme is like the tension between, um, this like little bubble that they exist in, um, and also like the extremity of the events and the force of the other per- like characters' worldviews clashing with theirs um and you have these clashing points that are like where i think the um like absurdity or um the strangeness of like their reactions is like really significant um when when you do like hit hit these points um and uh, and then there, you know, and just to like briefly add on to that, um, you know, there are ways that they're paralleled with like Lad and Lua, for instance, um, and these other characters who have like, so many of the characters are defined by these extremes of point of view or these extreme worldviews. It's not just Isaac and Miria. Um, so they're like paralleled in in these various ways with these other characters. Um, and you have these like clashes and intersections um, of, you know, that, that are producing certain results. Um, and yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of my read on them so far, but I'm interested to see what, what uh, continues to happen there. Yeah. Um, are we, are we done? Do we have anything left to say? I, I think we're at a good spot. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we, I know we talked about a lot of stuff along with the, um, along with the, uh, synopses and we, we had our symposium on Isaac and Mirio, which is exactly what I was hoping would happen. <laughs> it's like, like I said, they, they are the Forrest Gump and the R2-D2, probably respectively, of the show. <laughs> Um, yeah um i mean i I think i think i'm good um there is like so much more here because it's just it turns out this is a really dense (laughs) and thematically complicated show um but i i think there's like we have another discussion episode. Yeah. I, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that, like, even just, like, looking at some of the notes here, I think you're going to have a 
bit more things to say about a few of these things once you have a few more pieces of the story. Because, I mean, like, as he pointed out, where we stopped, um, the character of, uh, I believe, Claire? Is that Claire? The the, the, the lady in fatigues, um, we just barely got to meet her. And there's still new characters we haven't met in this show yet that are still going to be introduced into the equation just alongside, like, the ones we have so far. And, like, I mean... Honestly, if there is there is one thing I am, I am curious to pick your brains about again, like I know I already asked who you kind of saw as the heroes as being, but just on a more personal note, like who are your, who who would you say is y'all's like favorite like character so far? Unless the answer is like the same as mine for for Neve of uh of Ennis because I love Ennis. I don't I I can't get enough of Ennis. I, I'll take more Ennis gladly. Um. Yeah, I think like I I'm definitely a Ennis is great. I I also do like uh Isaac Amiria as just like I guess surprising me as um people who early on I kind of thought were just going to be like I mean episode 2 was weird how they focused in on them, but I I kind of thought they were just going to be like comic relief characters and they they are more interesting than that. Um but I think those are the, the biggest ones for me. Yeah. Um, it's tough. I, the way I'm trying to answer this question is I'm trying to just be like, who do I enjoy most when they're on screen? Um, I think Isaac and Miria is definitely uh, in the mix. Um I'm interested with, I'm interested in like the stuff, um, around, uh, Sh- uh, Shane Sh- or Shane. Uh, um, cause I, I don't remember any of that. Yeah. Um, Shane, I believe her name is. Shane. Um, so I'm very interested in, in her character. Um, like, I enjoy when she's on screen because I'm just like, okay, what's going on here? Like, I'm starting to get a grasp of of everyone else, but um, I'm still enjoying the mystery with her. Um, so Isaac and Miria, Jacuzzi is a little bit like, I go up and down on Jacuzzi. Sometimes I'm, I'm like enjoying him and sometimes I'm not. I think Jacuzzi um, is definitely more enjoyable through the eyes of other characters, particularly his close friends, more so than he probably is the like the POV of the show that we're shown. Because like it is this kind of thing where it's like he does have that energy of like, look at this fucking asshole. And so he goes, oh yeah, well that asshole goes to the children's hospital and reads them books for hours every weekend. What do you think of him now? Like he totally has that kind of energy to him, which I guess is like the opposite of like it. I mean that's that's the it's. It's that Woody Allen thing, except if the person at the core wasn't actually a huge piece of shit. Like, it is that energy <laughs> to him. And, like, getting to see him through the lens of his friends definitely does help to prop him up as, like, somebody that, like, okay, I see I see where his heart lies. Like, he does wear his heart on his sleeve, but that heart is very huge that he has. Yeah, I think, for me, it's, like, there is, like, a trope in comedy of that that is happening here too of like very powerful people like comically overestimating and like being afraid of like someone who's actually like really inept 
or whatever. Um, and then like, you know, the bit playing out as like just sheer coincidences, like continually like making them believe more and more in their like misconception. So I, I really enjoy that type of bit. Um, I feel like there's a little too much like shonen boy hero in jacuzzi to like yeah. make that bit yeah. full like fully that. But then he's also not like satisfying as like you know the like little shonen he's not like satisfying shonen boy hero like Midoriya is. Um so it's like I'm caught in the middle where I'm like I kinda like both, you know I can like both of the things that are making this character. Um but the way it's not like fully either one and that's kind of I'm vacillating on how, on whether you know whether that's like enjoyable for me or not. Yeah, if that makes sense. I I will say that this time around, I am warming up more to Nice than I usually do. I do really, I've really enjoyed Nice on this uh, viewing. I think there is something about her um, her enthusiasm and passion that doesn't verge to like a kind of creepy area that some anime kind of has a tendency to do with like women who are very passionate about their careers or hobbies i like that she just genuinely likes doing what she does and that's a cool energy i don't think you see enough in most media i just like seeing that um but i do i do love ns isaac and miri are just like objectively like the best i am also personally a big fan of lad russo um Obviously, I don't agree with his philosophies, but I think the way that he kind of like he's an interesting force to the he's an interesting force to the story in the way that he doesn't uh, he has no he seemingly has no investment in the stakes of the show. He's out for himself, but like he he still enacts a lot of action on it, and he understands that he can enact that action while also still satisfying his like own perverse desires. And also, too, like, something else I kind of picked up more on, like, this viewing as well is the idea that uh, Lad is basically on track to branch off from the Mafia and create his own Mafia as well, very similarly to uh, what Jacuzzi is doing, where his bootlegging operation is mm-hmm. becoming his own um, his own new Mafia as well. Um, something that I just love about Lad, like, I'll give you a little taste of what's, like, ahead in, like, the, the, the light novels, is at some point... Um, both Lad and Isaac do end up at Alcatraz as cellmates, and like Lad's Lad's philosophy, as he's basically like a spouse at this point in the show, is that he he can't stand the fa- he can't stand the energy of people who don't think that they can die or don't consider the fact that they could, and he wants to prove to those people and make it very clear to them that they have mortality and they can't die. But Lad and Isaac become best friends in prison because Isaac is too dumb to realize that he can die. And Lad just respects the hell out of that. So they become best friends. And it's like, I love that chaotic energy. And I love that there is like a compatibility between like the kind of chaos that Lad brings to the table and the chaos that Isaac brings, even though they're on the exact opposite ends of like that tonal spectrum. And so like, I guess I do. I do like the idea of like these characters entering this very tightly woven and knotted story, and just acting as like a stick of dynamite to just kind of say like you have all saying, "Oh, pretty nice set of dominoes you got set up here." Be ashamed if no someone knocked him over. Like 
I do love those characters that do bring that force of energy into it. And I think, I think, I think Lad represents like the most aggressive form of that energy to be injected in the story. So he, he is, he is the bull in the china shop in this, in this situation to, to hammer home like another, another tired <laughs> metaphor. He is the bull in the china shop. So I, I love seeing that bull get into this like so, so well crafted china shop. It is a, it is a, it is a blast to just watch unfold. Yeah. Wow, I, I Tracy, I can't believe Vlad's your favorite character. That's so fucked up. <laughs> you know me, I'm twisted. I'm totally jokerfied, so my tastes are, you know, a little extreme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here I was thinking that you were like, you know, that you didn't agree with Vlad's moral philosophy, but now I'm like, maybe you should totally re- do. Maybe you should read my Facebook profile some so sometime. It's all listed in my favorite quotes section. <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, though, uh, Ennis is my number one. JC, uh, I think you cut off, but yeah, oh no, Ennis. I was just—I was just reinforcing that Ennis continues to be my number one, and nothing has changed about that. Okay, good. Well, we'll see. We'll see if watching episodes nine through sixteen change your mind on that. Yeah. Uh, so next time we will be back to talk about episodes nine through sixteen. Uh, if you have questions for us, you can write into ghostdiverspod at gmail.com and we will answer them when we get to the question bucket. Um, please go to xwarodd.io and support the network. Uh, if you give a dollar, you get uh, early access to a number of podcasts. Uh, not this one, but you will get early access to Pondering Putan with Ajishiro Taro and Hachimitsu Boy, uh, a podcast that is coming at the end of the month that you are currently listening to this uh you will get that a week early uh that's gonna be connor and i reading through all of the karate high school manga um and mostly just bullshitting so the energy that you're gonna hear at the end of this episode um after the the ed stuff uh or actually i don't know if you will for this one because i think a lot of it's gonna make it into the the um intro episode but that'll that'll be pondering puton energy um, yeah, our standard bullshit, <laughs> but probably like to an even greater degree. Yeah. Uh and also if you give five dollars, you will get access to um Pop Town Funk, which is a podcast where uh Autumn and Nora, the the patron saints of X War Audio, uh roll a random Funko Pop and then have to usually watch something that is related to whatever the Funko Pop is. Um and then talk about <laughs> That's it. That's a great idea. I love that. <laughs> um it's it's mostly just like a a dice roll to generate content. Um there's very little actual Funko Pop in it, but it is still just a great way to like randomly produce something that you have to to engage with um and uh you can also listen to ornate stairwells a week early that is the podcast that i do with autumn and we talk about movies um i think that's this is it for the plugs that i have uh you can go to ghost divers pod on twitter to follow the podcast you can follow me at fox or media of underscore pile where can people follow you connor you can follow me at Ravelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Uh, and JC, any... Uh, you, can follow, you can follow me at Sonic9JCT on Twitter. Uh, I do comics and drawings, so you'll always see me posting those there. And I also stream with the Yeti, that's why the Y-E-T-E-E, you probably know him from like Games Done Quick. Um, I stream with them every Thursday at 2 p.m. Central, so just head to Yeti.tv. And you can watch me play games or eat potato chips 
I don't know. The last one we went to a VR art gallery. It was a lot of fun. We do whatever there. We have a good time. Uh, I I think that's it. Bye, everyone. Bye. See you What's next, next time. on Bacano, everyone? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, thanks for stopping. Bye. Bye. <laughs> we gotta we gotta we gotta leave the same way that uh isaac and mary leave jacuzzi's <laughs> plot where they say um what is it they say i, I made sure to write it down because i loved it so much um try not to die okay <laughs> bye <laughs>
do a final clap just so that if anything happens um all right let me see so what is it it's time.is yes yep the classic time.is have you heard about time.gov connor (laughs) no i haven't but i'm already suspicious oh let's let's do time.is first and then we'll check out time.gov okay 39. All right. Hey, perfect timing. Um, Time.gov. Oh, yeah, no, this isn't good. Is that just like whatever time the government tells you it is? Basically, yeah. It's it's creepy. Um, I don't like that there isn't just a giant, like, here's the current time where I am. Um, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I don't trust the government's conception of time. <laughs> yeah, we we believe in the free market here. <laughs> so tell me, government, which time do you think is the main time zone? <laughs> this is where the president doesn't mention the fact that he might be the main time zone. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's just, they're like, the only time... That exists exists in America. Yeah, and I don't. I I hate. That's just rank jingoism, and therefore I will never use this website. Um, um, I gotta run to the bathroom really quick. But before I do, um, I just wanted to say, very like right at the end there. I'm sure you guys heard it. My Bluetooth headphones died. Oh, okay. So that's what that was. I wasn't sure if maybe my internet was like being wonky because I'm on Wi-Fi on the opposite end of my apartment from my router, so it's not too unusual for me to kind of maybe get a little choppy during a podcast. So I wasn't sure if that's what it was. No, my Bluetooth headphones died, and uh, it just like went on my. I don't even know what it was, but um, oh, actually, I think it came out of my my monitor. It switched to my monitor audio, um, so then I had to switch to my like my big can headphones. So that's what that was. But it was only for like the last 10 minutes, yeah. maybe 15. Uh, did you, did you all hear when Ollie jumped up there? I heard some meowing for a second, but I didn't hear any like clattering or nothing. Here, let me, I really have to go pee. So yeah, go, go do right it. Back. Go do it. I, I understand that pain. <laughs> <laughs> that's so 
That's where I was when I went to go see everything everywhere all at once. Because about 40 minutes up through the end, I really had to pee. And I was like, I don't want to leave because this is so interesting and dense in information. I don't think there's a good time to leave. Yeah. Holly, what are you doing? I don't know why, but I really want to play this under knots game. Have you have you seen this at all? No. Um, it's it seems to be a um, goodness gracious. There is a name for what kind of I guess RPG it is. It's the kind of RPG that the Etrian Odyssey games are, where it's like oh, like a dungeon like, crawler. Yeah, it's a dungeon crawler. I guess is what you call it. It's this Japanese dungeon crawler that Axis put out late last year. I haven't leapt on it yet because like. It's on Switch and PS4, and I, I was thinking about getting it on PS4, but it, they were like, oh, a PS5 copy is coming, but they haven't confirmed whether or not, like, the physical PS4 has a free upgrade, and it's like, I would, I'm willing to wait for the PS5 version, but I don't know, the box art really has me entranced, and I was reading about it, because I think it's kind of, like, about, like, it's like in a future society, where it's, like, people have to go into, like, this dungeon or this tower to fight monsters for resources or something or another and they're just like regular people and your party is just made out of random regular people from the city and stuff and people can die and come and go and stuff and i'm like i really want to play this and i don't know why and i don't know when but i will because something about this has me has me entranced i like this concept i like the box art of this game it just hasn't worked its magic on me yeah I am back. Hello. Hello. So you say you did the Pokemon hack to do your 3DS? Um, yes. Is you. it like a is it like a permanent mod or is it the kind where you have to boot it up every time you want to go into the modern mode? Um, there's a it starts off as a thing where you have to boot it up, but then you um there's a way to to transfer it onto the cuz what happens is it's first on the um card itself and then you can transfer it onto the um like internal memory itself. And then once you mm-hmm. do that, I think is the point where you can then make it uh, where it boots itself up every time. So are you running, uh, do you have God mode nine on there with that mod? Yes. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, this is um, what 3ds hacks dot guide. I think it's called the seed miner method. Um, See, I, I actually don't know how my 3DS is modded because I used to do the Cubic Ninja mod because that's what I used to play uh, the new Rhythm Heaven game when that came out because that wasn't going to come out in America at first and I bought it at a convention because it was like well, it was like one of my favorite series. I can't not play the new game. Yeah. And then um, when I started working at the Yeti, we have a guy there who I literally describe him as being like our company's Brock Sampson. His job is that he basically just like does repairs for our arcade machines and gets new machines for our arcade and stuff. So he's just always soldering something or like moving things on and off of trucks. And like, like my first or second day was there is like, Hey dude, you want to mod your 3DS for you? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And he was like, just bring it in give me like five minutes and I'll do it. And it was like, all right, I brought it in. I gave it to him. went to my desk and like seven minutes later, he was like, all right, cool. Your 3DS is modded now. And I put a 3DS, a bigger SD card in there for you. I was like, nice so i don't actually know what mod i have in there i just know that it is now modded um so the the I'm back, main way the version i did is yeah it's called the seed miner method which if you go to like 3ds.hacks.guide slash seed miner it goes <laughs> into it um 
It's interesting because there's this part where uh, when you take out your SD card, you have to get your your IDO folder like characters, and then you have a bot that like joins your friend list. Um, oh wait, he was telling me about this. That. I think yeah. he did this method for one of my other coworkers because he said he had to do it differently for each of us. And um, it generates a thing and like gives you a file, and you just put that file on there, and it like, uh, and then you there's some way that you like go in and do an additional part with it. But basically that like lets you do the, the main hack, but the, the way to run it is you um, have Pokemon Picross and you replace the save with the save that's generated by seed miner, I think. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to boot it up, um, it tries to load that save and instead ends up loading the hack. Um, nice. So it, it's definitely like the easiest way to do it. Most p- things now recommend doing it this way. Um, mm-hmm. And then once you have that like stuff, um, once you have that like base hack and then it's just like, oh, okay, now install bootstrap, install blah, blah, blah. Like mm-hmm. here, here's the other stuff. But um, yeah, yeah it, get, get, get yourself that twilight <laughs> menu. It's basically like just having an R4 on your 3DS. Mm-hmm. Um. One thing is my, so I had a, I, I did an order of SD cards and then I got, um, a SD, a different SD card that's for, that's like larger than, and I put it in my switch just like to have more memory in my switch Mm -hmm. as well as the adapters for the PSP and Vita. So I can use the micro SDs on them. Um, and that package that has the, the switch memory card and the, the one like the adapters um seems to have just been like lost in um the mail at this point and hopefully it will still arrive but like currently it's just missing and so i believe it didn't come today so i should be able to get a refund tomorrow Mm -hmm. um and i'm hoping that it will come and then i might just use the money that i got as a refund to get a new uh r4ds because um I might still end up putting some stuff on the the 3ds as well and kind of just run that. Um, but the some of the like the the screens on the DS are just better for DS games. So uh, you know um, you, you know you can boot up uh, DS games at their native resolution if you are so inclined in a 3ds. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, that, that that helps. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Because some DS <laughs> games helps. kind of look like shit on a 3DS, and other ones look okay. Yeah. It's also a thing of just like th- this is getting into um, like if people don't know this, don't look it up because it will just like ruin your ability to to enjoy DS games on the 3DS. But there are other changes. Like if you look at even if you just look at base comparisons, like colors get washed out on the 3DS. Um, even if you do the the smaller version, like where it's the actual normal pixel size. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm also like a huge stickler for controllers. And like my dirty secret is that I don't like the D pad and the buttons on the 3DSs or the switch. They hurt my hands a yeah. lot. So like, that is why I bought a new 2DS XL because it's the only 3DS model that has softer buttons closer to a DS Lite instead of like the clicky buttons like the Switch and the other 3DSs have. So like yeah. that's the one that I modded because I was like, I might play Game Boy Advance games on here and I definitely will try to figure out how to like rip DS games on here and stuff. And it's 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 nicer. It's not as nice as the DS Lite, but like to just be able to like 
like I said, like that that same guy has a gigantic game library. He literally has like a PDF with all his games on it. And I was looking at it, and I was like, "Yo, bring in these like twelve games. I'm gonna rip them during my lunch, and I'll just give them right back to you." And so, yeah, it's it's it was nice to be able to just like throw those on my uh, 3ds's hard drive. Unless I just come across those games in real life, like I did with Trauma Center Two, because I didn't think I'd find that game, and then I did, and I was like, "Well, I will buy <laughs> Trauma Center 2. Yeah, um, it'll just get increasingly difficult to get stuff. So. It's one of those things where it's like at a certain point, um, like in general, I think like there's a place for piracy, but the, especially when it's like eShop is closing, it's like, okay, this is the place for it. Like you're not even going to be able to give them money for it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, you might as well like just do the things now so that you, you have it and you can play stuff later. Um, even just to like have that little bit of personal preservation, because it was also just nice to back up all of my carts and my save files onto the SD card and be like, okay, I have like all of this, you know, um, I have stuff like preserved a little bit more in case I don't know what's going to end up happening with carts down the line and stuff too. So, yeah, I'm I'm strongly considering just also backing up all my 3ds and DS games because like DS games are tiny and it's really easy to rip those. So it's like I could very easily just rip my ds games just keep them all on my 3ds and when i travel with it i don't have to travel with any cartridges which is why i like digital i don't like traveling with tiny nintendo cartridges but, yeah uh, yeah i don't know i i will miss the eShop uh buying stuff off the 3ds one and especially the wii u one i forgot how much of a nightmare it is to actually buy things off of it like i was trying to buy dlc for final fantasy feature rhythm like a year or two ago because there is 2FA on your eShop account now with the Switch. The Wii U and the 3DS do not support 2FA, so you have to figure out the really wraparound ways how to actually log in on it. And then for, like, that game, you had to, like, individually purchase and individually download one at a time every song you're trying to download as DLC. And I'm just kind of like, I wouldn't blame anybody for just getting so frustrated and turning straight to piracy, because I'm trying to give it an honest legal shot before I go for any piracy stuff, but I'm just kind of like, Man, you guys aren't making this easy, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um Anyway, do we want to get into discussion episode? Yeah. More than anything in the world, I'm so excited to talk talk talking obacano. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just like reading the the synopses here. Um Yeah. To like refresh my memory. Um, um They look good. Yeah, these are just from Straight from Wikipedia, I think. Unless yeah, anyone edited pretty it. Good. Uh, all right, I will get us into it. <clears throat> um, before we get into discussion, can we take a, a bathroom break? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Do you want to clap or? Um, I do little notes in mind, but if people want to Perfect. clap, go ahead and clap. A round of applause. No, that, that's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, we'll be back. Good. Great job. <laughs> uh, it's just recordings of me laughing at things on Twitter as I see them. <laughs> <laughs> that's always that's always a good uh, thing to just keep keep handy. Just a recording of you laughing. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's very easy to make me laugh with just like Elden Ring shit posts. Those those will get to me almost every time. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, I haven't started playing Elden Ring yet. Ooh, it is so good. I've it's heard so it's very I've good. heard it is Yeah, I've heard it's it's a good one. Um and I believe that. Uh, I sometimes I, I, have this thing. Oh go ahead. No, go ahead. Go, 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 please. Um I was just gonna say, like, I sometimes have this thing when especially like when new games come out mm-hmm. and I know that they're good. Like people are like hyping it up and then I kind of like look at it a little bit and I'm like, oh man, like I, I know this is good. I get like, it makes me procrastinate on playing it even more mm-hmm. um, because I'm just like, oh, I really need to like. All right. I am back. Cool. We're talking about Elden Ring. Um, <laughs> But I get this weird, like, notion where I'm like, okay, this is going to be good, so I want to, like, absolutely maximize my enjoyment of this thing. And that means that I need to, like, just play it at a time where I can, like, just dedicate myself to it. Just carve out, like, a ton of time and just fucking go for it. I mean, I 110% advocate that. Like, I knew people that were like, I feel like if I'm not beating this game in, like, two or three weeks, I'm playing it wrong. And it's like... Buddy, you are ruining your time with a game that is really about a personal relationship with that game. Play it at your own fucking pace. Who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. that's That tends to be what I end up doing, even when I, like, decide to to commit to a game. I, I tend to take a very long time to play it. I think it took me, like... I started playing Metal Gear Solid Five, and it, I played it, like fairly continuously like off and on but at an off and on frequency that it took me like two years to beat it um so that's pretty that's pretty common for me yeah Yeah, i will often bill myself as the world's slowest gamer i i I do not play games for long stretches of time and i don't like i don't know i don't i don't binge stuff i don't stay up late i just kind of like take 30 minutes to an hour every three or four days to play something. That's usually how I play in most things. It ends up being. That's a good approach. I think I, I should do that more. Cause I'm like 30 minutes an hour is like a great amount of time to play a game, but I'm often just like, ah, oh, I don't have long enough. Then I don't do it. Well, Elden Ring is great for that. Just be ready to do that for about a hundred hours worth of doing that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fantastic. Alright, ready to jump back in? Yep. Um, The mic did not speak up me cracking my bones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're we're pro, like, bodily sounds on Ghost Divers, I think. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we even just, like, add them in. Yeah, sometimes we just, we keep, like, a bank. Neve keeps, like, a bank of just (laughs) our various bodily noises and just sometimes... (laughs) So just splice them in. Please, please like add my allowed bones to the bank. I'd like to <laughs> deposit one bones, please. We're gonna we're gonna get like a sound bite of your jacuzzi spot impression. Yeah. And just <laughs> use it like in perpetuity on ghost divers. Um every time that one of us says rail tracer, I'm just gonna replace it with the time that you said it in the jacuzzi spot voice. Um <laughs> Just gonna really make a bunch of editing work for myself. <laughs> Rail tracer. <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> Boy, I um, sure do love okay. that. Rail Tracer. <laughs> yeah, me too. I think Rail Tracer is my favorite character. <laughs> um, you know, just like grinding people into into chum on train tracks is it's really my thing. <laughs> 